Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm really excited to bring the conversation I had with Scott Fulford. Uh, Scott is a senior economist at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, he's also been an assistant professor of economics and international studies at Boston College. He has a bachelor's in economics and a bachelor's in mathematics from Stanford a master's in economics from Princeton, and a PhD in economics from Princeton. And he is the author of uh, the new book, The Pandemic Paradox, How the COVID Crisis Made Americans More Financially Secure. Um, This is a fabulous book. Um, And as I mentioned in the conversation, uh, we don't talk about the lab leak masks, mandates, lockdowns, vaccines. Those things are important when talked about, I think, honestly and in charitable ways. But there are many other things. There's many, many other ways in which the pandemic has really impacted uh, everybody around the world and and impacted people um, here in the United States. And this Scott's book is is really wonderful because it's it's very easy to read, but he talks about it, the economics and what 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 that was like uh, a little bit before, during, and and kind of now as we're um, you know moving out of the acuity of of the pandemic and 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 how this has impact on and many different um, aspects of of society. And I think those things don't get talked about enough, and they're missed. And his book, I think, is 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 just so valuable. Um, for understanding many other things uh, about the pandemic. We start by talking about what is the pandemic paradox, uh, such as spending less, saving more, effective uh, government policies that were used. Talk a little bit about income versus wealth. We talk about what was the uh, state of the economy right before the pandemic. So where where did we kind of start before the pandemic hit? Where, Where things were economically? We talk about the economy during the beginning of the pandemic, you know, huge unemployment, you know, GDP was down, spending, all these things. Talk about the CARES Act a lot, uh, all the different components to it, and how that really kind of just set the tone for all of the subsequent uh, um, bills that were passed. We talk about those subsequent acts that were uh, passed after the CARES Act, one of them being the American Rescue Plan. We talk about that, some of the differences. Uh, we spend some time talking about childhood poverty. That was a big feature of that uh, bill. Talk about the pandemic uh, and childcare and women's labor, the pandemic and the work revolution. We spent a lot of time on this. We also talk about where we're at, you know, more in the past year, year and a half about inflation, supply chain, and kind of where the economy is uh, now, you know, and, and what makes, you know, the pandemic, um, you know, how it impacted the economy uh, in 2020 and 21 and, and how we're, uh, why we're able to kind of move forward. Um, again, it's a super, super, super important thing to think about the pandemic in different ways and how it impacts others. And I think also economically and, and to Scott's point, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, paradoxical benefits. Uh, of course there were so many people that lost their lives and were, um, sick and people that were economically struggling. We, we talk about that in this conversation as well, but, uh, I think it's important to think about all aspects of of the pandemic. Um, we talk for, I believe it's about two and a half hours, um, so it's it's definitely um, pretty you know wide ranging. We get into the details of some of it, and I, I'm really thankful for that because um, you know I think just a cursory kind of 
one hour conversation would be fine. But we, we I really felt uh, very pleased with the conversation afterwards that we got a lot of really good uh, uh, details and data, um, you know, out there in the conversation and for everyone to, to, to hear. Uh, as always, you can listen to this conversation and all other conversations at my free Substack, Convergent Dialogues at Substack.com. Uh, follow, subscribe uh, over there if you haven't, so you can hear this one and all the other uh, conversations I have uh, coming up. And uh, now I bring you Scott Fulford. I'm here with Scott Fulford. Scott, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, very much looking forward to uh, talking with you. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I, I should say just right at the outset uh, that what I say right now, uh, my views are mine and not necessarily those of the CFPB, uh, which is where I work. Yeah, I, I, I saw this in the in the book uh, as well. And so I imagine there's a lot of uh, a lot of that caveat you have to give at many points. <laughs> uh, we, we just try to be really careful. Uh, so that that sort of not not claiming uh, greater representation and greater uh, greater weight to my views. I hope they're great views, but uh, not not to claim that other people have them. <laughs> no, that's 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 uh, that's totally fair. Um, well, you've uh, you've written a book, uh, the pandemic paradox: how the COVID crisis made Americans more financially secure. Um, really interesting. I, I've uh, mentioned I, so the book's great. I've, I've obviously read it. It's it's wonderful. And I can't wait to talk about it. But when I bring this up to people, people are like, hmm, I don't know about that. Is that, hmm, what's that about, right? There's there's a lot of skepticism when I bring it. I'm like, no, no, you got to, and I'll give them like the the pitch or whatever. And I'll be like, oh, okay, that does sound interesting to read. But it's interesting. It does meet a lot of skepticism when I when I uh, just kind of tell people casually what, what it's about. So I don't know if you've had that same experience or not, but. You know, it's interesting. I, I think in the economics community, in the sort of the the Wonka sphere, if you will, uh -huh. I, kind of a lot of these things are fairly well known. Mm. But whenever I move just a little bit outside of that or talk to people who uh, talk to reporters really frequently, they say, oh, wait, wait, you mean people's finances got better during the pandemic mm -hmm. and and yet sort of that's a really well-known thing for the economists mm -hmm. and in some ways that's sort of part of the reason I wanted to write the book that it became really clear that the story was people were doing really well financially uh, and to really understand why that was mm. yeah no well you, you do it uh, very very well so it would be nice to kind of go through all of it uh, before we do that why don't you tell folks uh, who you are uh, what you do, what your background's in, and what you're currently up to. Sure. Um, so, uh, Scott Fulford, I think you probably already introduced me. Uh, so, I'm a senior economist at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And uh, before that, I was a uh, professor at Boston College, where I taught international studies and economics. Uh, most of my work was on development economics, but I've become more and more uh, focused on understanding how people use financial products to deal with problems in their life. Uh, so one of the things that I do a lot is I run surveys and think through, well, okay, so you had a problem. You had a difficulty making a bill, uh, paying a bill or expense. What did you do about it? What were some of the things that led into it? And what were some of the things that led out to it, led from it? Uh, and more generally, I have a PhD in economics. Uh, and so that's sort of my, where I start in as, as a discipline uh, from where I think about things. Hmm. Yeah, I've had a I haven't had too many uh, economists on the on the podcast. I've I've had a, a handful. I've had uh or or people that have studied economics, I guess um maybe not officially, but they've studied it and written books about it. I had um uh Bruce Carruthers who wrote The Economy mm -hmm. of 
what was it the economy of trust or promise or something like that uh i talked to uh elizabeth uh, she wrote um how to think like an economist uh, i'm forgetting her last name uh i can't remember and then i recently talked to uh Panar uh, Yildirim, which she's an mm-hmm. economist slash engineer at uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania, I forget which school. So a few of you, a few of people in your kind of orbit, maybe not specifically, you, you guys have a a big a big uh, field and discipline and so many subdisciplines. So it'd be really really nice to talk about all of the all the the numbers and the data. So again, I was I was really pleased with the book because it's not this kind of like you know, just in the trenches of numbers, it's, it's very, uh, you, you wrote very well, which is good. I think the average person that has zero background in economics, like myself can pick it up and just be like, Oh, okay, this makes sense or whatever. So it's wonderful. Well, that was one of the goal. One, one of the, as I was sort of writing the book. So one of the things I did, uh, during sort of starting in March, 2020, I, I was essentially briefing the people at the CFPB on what was going on, helping them understand. Mm. And a, a lot of people at the CFPB, uh, are not economists. There are some who are, but a lot aren't. And so I, I, one of the things I really worked on was trying to explain, okay, so here's what the unemployment rate is, but economists maybe all know that, but not everybody else understands some of the, some of the issues with that. And it really mattered when we were getting numbers that were kind of complicated and people were trying to wonder, oh, are things getting better? Are things getting worse? What, what's happening? And to, one of the things we tried to, I, I really tried to think through was, how do I explain this to people who maybe aren't economists but want to understand these massive changes that are happening in our lives? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's that's important. I mean, I think especially for 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 various economic data points, which you know some we'll we'll get into. I guess just real quick before we get into the book, um, I know you've made your your disclaimer statement. That you're not representing the CFPB here; it's your your personal uh, viewpoints and stuff. Um, but you know, most folks will remember the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, you know, the big fight it was just to get into existence kind of from the brain trust of Liz Warren and mm-hmm. working with the Obama administration. And I guess just, uh, and it pops up in the news every now and then, um, I guess just generally how, how much of, of the CFPB's role during the pandemic was, was important or substantial or, uh, just more generally. And if you don't want to answer, that's fine. But I was just curious about, during the pandemic, how how helpful or, or or whatever it was for for you know average Americans. Well, I mean, so I, I like to think the CFPB is always helpful, uh, but yeah. I, uh, we had uh, but we didn't generally have a role in some of the actual in some of the direct uh, sort of the poli- the new policy programs that were put in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there were there were some important regulatory and sort of oversight functions that the CFPB played. Uh, and I, I can't sort of like how big those were feels uh, something which I think is a little uh, little for, for me not representing the CFPB to say. Sure. But it, w- there were other government agencies that had a much bigger direct role. So mm-hmm. uh, the Small Business Administration sure. uh, worked on the Paycheck Protection Program, which we may get into a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was an $800 billion dollar uh, grant program. And that's a massive amount of just sort of administrative uh, work that they had to spin up, mm-hmm. uh, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll, we'll mention it, but I think a lot of people don't recognize, maybe you mentioned in the book that when people get all of that stuff from <clears throat> uh, stimulus packages and stuff, and there's certain, there's an agency. So I'll take, uh, uh transportation because, or an infrastructure, because that was, uh, a big one that people remember. I mean, it's a lot of work to like 
use the money essentially like it's mm-hmm. it's it's a big 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 organized you know enterprise and you have to do all these things and use it well and how does it you know go to places it's supposed to go and like it's it's great but it's also like a lot of work mm-hmm. <laughs> so, maybe that's just the obvious maybe people already know that but i feel like some people forget that it's like yeah people don't just write a check to the uh uh department of transportation and people just like give it out to department like it's really complicated there's a lot that goes into it there is uh and and uh i i think in some ways kind of uh so one of the things i talk about in the book are some programs that didn't go as well and didn't or, or weren't as weren't as effective or where the money wasn't ended up being spent as well but i think it's also worthwhile just pointing out the all of the t- really great and hard work that a lot of civil servants did to try to figure out how to make things that weren't necessarily happening and might not have happened in the pandemic happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example because it's one that I care a lot about. Uh, state unemployment systems were really bad during the pandemic. So just uh, there was a huge amount of new unemployment. Many more people were claiming by orders of magnitude, 10, 20 times more than it ever claimed before. And a lot of state unemployment systems kind of crumpled under that mm. pressure. But there were that that's not to fault the civil servants in charge of those systems who then tried to figure out how do we scale up? How do we hire people who can answer the phones? And so it, it, there were there was a huge amount of work going on to try to fix those systems once it became very clear that they weren't up to the pandemic pressures that were happening for them. Yeah. Well, that's just so interesting because there was issues before the pandemic and then the issue during you know, of the pandemic, during the pandemic, and now afterwards, is it, it seems like there's a big kind of rebuild from that. So it's interesting how you know, things weren't running perfectly and smoothly before the pandemic. And then that hits and then it just create, creates more insult to injury. Mm-hmm. So now it's like more, even more work, you know, as we're, you know, kind of moving out of the, the, I guess you could say the acute part of the pandemic, I should say. So, okay. So let's, let's start with the uh, kind of where you start at in the book. So, um, give me, give me the, give me the pitch. Give me the, give me the thesis of the book. It's, you claim the average American savings uh, increased, uh, credit card went, credit card debt, excuse me, went down. Um, what's so these things may seem maybe some people will say, yeah, that, that's true for me or other people. But what's the main thesis here? And maybe just with specifics like that of of uh, of why you claim that Americans are more financially secure uh, uh, during uh, the pandemic? Yeah. Well, let me. We first just put a little bit of kind of like just how bad things were. Sure. So, I mean, just because I think it's sort of worthwhile, people maybe forget that sort of between mid-March and mid-April, 22 million people lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. And just to give a sense, that's more people than are employed in the state of California. So it's as if everybody in California got fired. And every lots of other people were suddenly working from home and trying to figure it out. And some people were having to go into work and trying to figure out, well, uh, I don't, I don't want to get close to anybody. Can I wear, do I wear a mask? Does that help? Do I have to wipe everything down every time anybody breathes or look at, looks at it? Mm-hmm. So in say late March, April, 2020, things were really, really scary. And the surprising thing is that finances actually improved. And there are two things that happened there that really uh, that are really explained. So first, there was a whole lot of individual decisions. So 
I'm, I'm not sure if you remember, but I, I didn't go anywhere for close to six weeks. I basically stayed home with my kids. Maybe we ordered delivery for, for groceries. Maybe maybe one my wife and I had to snuck out and tried to kind of buy some things, but we stopped going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that was actually common across the country. So uh, yeah. there were some there were some cell phone measurement uh, that you could see just uh, counties where travel had dropped by ninety percent, mm. and I think the average was something like forty or fifty percent. Mm. So people stopped going places. And one of the things when you sort of stop going out, well, you're not going out for restaurants, you're not going out to bars, you're not traveling. So all of, all vacations got canceled. And all that together meant that people were actually spending a whole lot less. So that's one piece. The people were just spending less. And it turns out when you spend less, that means you have that means if your income doesn't go down, then you have uh, then you have money to spend or money, then you have money that goes into the bank. So the other really important thing that happened was really surprisingly effective policy. So on March 27th, uh, 2020, the CARES Act was passed. And this was a big bill, that $2.2 trillion, although the exact amount is sort of a little fuzzy because this is sort of congressional budgeting, which is always a little fuzzy. Uh, and it gave a, it, it did a whole lot of things. The biggest things it did was right away, it just sent about two to $300 billion, uh, about a thousand, several thousand dollars to almost every adult uh, just, just right out. It also really expanded the unemployment system. So it brought a lot more people, made a lot more people eligible, and it gave um, it, it, it increased the amount that people could earn in unemployment insurance. So those two things, people were spending less, and then government policy was really effective at making most people so that their incomes didn't go down. Mm-hmm. And in fact, some people's incomes actually went up. And when you put those two things together, well, you're spending less, your income is the same or higher, well, your savings are going up, and you can pay down expensive debts, and maybe when the rent comes due, well, maybe last year last year you had some problems, but this year you've got money in the bank, and so, the, and so you can pay the rent or mortgage. And so the combination of those two things really changed the finances of people, so that by June uh, or July most people were just better off financially on kind of any measure you look at. Now, that's just to be clear, that's not true for everybody. It's always true that there are some people who aren't doing well, and I want to always acknowledge that. Yeah. But on average, it was pretty clear. So, so yeah, that was my, that I, have, I have two follow-ups here on this point. So the, well, I have three follow-ups on this point. Okay, so the first one is, so who are we talking about? Because they're certainly, and you, you say this in the book, so I mean, you're, you're, you're not a monster. You're not saying this. Everyone was having a great time. There were people that were really hurting, and there were people that really needed um, a lot of this aid, right, as you mentioned from, from various um, um, uh, bills that were passed. Um, so so who, who are we talking about? So you can break it up however you want, demographically or regionally or by, um, by class or by job, uh, occupation, whatever, however you want to break it up. And second, um, how I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on this. Um, so you said 22 million people had lost their jobs or unemployed. Which one was it? Lost their jobs. Uh, it had lost their jobs. Lost although, their jobs. uh, some of the, the, those things can get a little fuzzy between them. Sure. So how was this? In comparison to the 08 crash, 
right? Because that was the last, again, completely different, not a pandemic, right? That's you know, it's a financial structure. So it's very different. And it was also a different time. Um, so who's the audience? Uh, how is it juxtaposed with the last time we had a lot of people losing jobs? Um, and I've lost my third point. Okay, go with those two. The third one. Well, so let me take the uh, second one. Okay. So it, in many ways, the so the 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 pandemic kind of recession, if you want to call it, it, it was a re- it was a recession. We've now dated it. Um, was deeper than the Great Recession in in the sense that unemployment. Uh, spiked higher, and the just the collapse in GDP of something like ten percent from the first quarter to the second quarter was larger than any point for the Great Recession. The thing is, the Great Recession, the two thousand and eight, the thing sort of the that started with the financial crisis in two thousand eight, it went on and on mm-hmm. and on. Mm-hmm. So, kind of ten percent unemployment rate for years continued after the Great Recession. Whereas, and this is an important distinction, the pandemic, really big. I mean, lots of people lost their jobs, but by 2021, people were really coming back and the the unemployment rate had gone way down. Uh, and the, people's finances were pretty all were, were all right. Whereas in the Great Recession, people really hadn't. There wasn't a lot of government support. There wasn't a lot of spending, and the economic weakness just lasted. Mm-hmm. So the, the kind of the big difference is the pandemic was worse in an economic sense, in the sense that it was just very concentrated, but it bounced back much much more quickly. And so the there was just much less damage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so okay, I'll come. I was going to say, is this is this something that? So, how much of the the um, bills that were passed and signed were, you know, obviously, was this a reason why you know spiked, shot up, and then you know people were starting to get employed again faster? It wasn't years like in 08, 09. Was it because of? Some of the government uh, bills that were passed, the you know, federal government coming in and, and really giving aid to people, or was it just, you know, a- after we got vaccines and after people started coming, you know, going back into uh, society again and they weren't all staying at home, it just mm-hmm. kind of happened that way? Because a lot of people say those jobs were lost and gone, like they didn't come back or that business or that restaurant when it closed, it it's gone. It didn't come back or something new popped up. You hear you hear a lot of at least mm-hmm. anecdotally stories like that. I guess what was the reason for it to kind of bounce back quicker than in 08 or 09? Well, I mean, so I, I think that it's, it's worth saying that there are two that there were multiple things going on. Uh, of course, part of it is that it, that 2008 and 2009 was a financial crisis, mm-hmm. and the thing about financial crisis it, the crises is that they really kind of they they really just gum everything up, mm-hmm. and it just took a long time to kind of ungum everything. And that's kind of evocative description, but I think it's a pretty it's a pretty apt one. Sure. Uh, kind of finance is kind of is. When it's working well, it helps grease wheels. It helps make sure that the person who has the idea can get money from the people who have savings. And those people can kind of, and if a business has a good business, it can keep on going, even if maybe it's not quite bringing in quite enough right now. When that when those things aren't happening, everything kind of good businesses go under. Uh, people kind of can't, can't make things work. So the... During the pandemic, we sort of knew what was going on, and there wasn't sort of the extra financial thing. So it's possible things could have bounced back really easily. Um, But I think there's a lot of sense that 
the government policy really did make a huge difference in the macroeconomic picture, that mm-hmm. sort of the speed with which things came back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of that's just because people weren't hurting financially so that when when things could open up, they could start spending again. Mm-hmm. And businesses had managed not to shut down, partly because people, I think people understood that it wasn't going to be forever, but also because of some government policy. And so when they could open up again, they could open up again and people could start spending again. And sort of things sort of could restart relatively easily. And that didn't have to happen. Uh, so once, once something, once something goes bust, uh, I don't, so the, the one I used to, I like to point to is the, um, there's a little French bistro down the street, or down the street, but in, in our neighborhood. And w- once a re- once a restaurant goes under, well, they've lost all that kind of accumulated and sorry for the economic term, capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have, so maybe a new restaurant can start up, but the old restaurant had a bunch of investments that it made that are now just wasted. Mm-hmm. They had a bunch of employees who knew how to do things for that restaurant and knew how to cook their menu. Well, they're all gone. And so a new restaurant just has to put much more, much more into starting again. And so kind of when you let everything kind of die, it 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 kind of tends to deepen things. Uh, and so by kind of keeping keeping things from getting worse, a lot of the government policy then meant things could get much better much faster. So, so about audience. So you were talking about so so people got better in in, in for many ways as you detailed out, but detailed out. So who who was this more or less, and who was this not? Maybe more importantly, I should say, who didn't feel some of these uh, positive or I guess somewhat beneficial things to save money or things like that? Yeah. Well, so I think it's worth saying that much of this was fairly widespread. So kind of the general improvements were fairly widespread. And so when we've been when when I break things down for example by race and ethnicity or by income mm-hmm. or by geography it turns out that most people had improvements. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it it's important to sort of say that to say just because most people had improvements doesn't mean everything was equal and everybody was doing as well and everybody so uh, things could have been worse for many groups even if they weren't uh e- e- the the pandemic aid and a lot of the pandemic relief really did help many groups, and and we could have and kept things from getting worse. But it wouldn't doesn't it didn't help everybody as much. Uh, so one, but I think in some senses that's sort of useful because it helps it helps divide things up a little bit. So one of the things I like to think about in and I uh, is wealth inequality, for example, and I, I uh, just because I think that's a useful way of sort of measuring some things. Yeah. So. This is reversed a little bit because there's been some decline in stock market uh, recently that sort of changed. But a lot of things got much more unequal during the pandemic. So first, there was just a big decline and kind of like the stock market got scary. But then there was a huge increase in the sort of top incomes uh, for uh, and the top wealth uh, by the richest people. So that matters. But here's the interesting thing. There was also a big increase for the bottom fifty percent, and where was that coming from? Well, it was that those un- that unemployment insurance and the economic impact payments, the stimulus checks. So there was a lot of money that was going to help support kind of the bottom end, and so lots of people ended up not worse or even slightly better, even if a lot of wealth, very wealthy people got a lot, a lot more, a uh, lot higher income or higher wealth. Um, so that was one. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, so that was one piece of it. 
But I think a kind of a broader sense, and I think that it's worthwhile just remembering uh, the book I think about and what, where I come at things is mostly economic. Mm-hmm. But of course, this was also a major health event. Yeah. And uh, and death didn't come equally uh, to uh, to our to our uh, uh, our fellow people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, black Americans were far more likely to uh, to die. Their life expectancy went down pretty substantially. Uh, Hispanic Americans went down really substantially. Life expectancy went really substantially. And it, I think we it's hard to measure it because we don't we we don't have quite the right statistics. But it's pretty clear that Native Americans' mortality rate went went really up really tremendously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I the 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 sort of government transfers the relief kind of helped the financial helped the financial part of it mm-hmm. but at the end of the day our our health system really didn't serve a lot of people very well mm-hmm. yeah i think that that's i remember this was talked about during as it was happening and people were you know doing what they normally do picking sides and you know we shouldn't talk about this or that's all we should talk about and and i think it was i think the data is the data i mean the, the what you just said is is factual and so in my estimation, it's what well, that should be uh, treated, you know, very well that, that, you know, certain groups shouldn't be overlooked or, you know, coming, you know, after the fact, I think that some, some folks do take priority, not to say that people take priority over other people per se, but some people just need more resources in some ways. And so, or, or access to resources. And so, um, you know, that's probably a, a failing uh, of the response during the, the pandemic, um, but uh, yeah, and I know you mentioned it uh, in a few chapters in your book as well, which is, I mean, obviously, you know, heartbreaking, right? Because, you know, it's people's mm-hmm. lives. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about this. Uh, so I'll ask it here. You're, you're so the non-economist here in, in, the, in the colloquial room. Um, there is a difference between wealth and income, right? And so there is. <laughs> so, um, in this way, and you might have noticed I was sort of I, I was being a little uh, flippant between them. They they are closely related. They are not the same. Right, right. So, well, you can explain the difference if you like. You're, you're you're the expert here more than I am. But how, I guess in some of the things that you're discussing, you know, savings, going down on credit card debt, paying some bills off, blah blah blah. Does this have more to do with income that people maybe were more financially secure on their income side? And not necessarily growing exponentially. I know you mentioned that 50% piece on the wealth piece, but maybe just talk about, this is a little nuanced, but what was the difference here of, in terms of how we're basically defining or categorizing or conceptualizing financially secure? Was it just more like week in, week out, check to check, okay, we put a little bit more away and we're a little bit more secure? Or was there actual all of a sudden you see the average person investing in stocks and people are buying more homes and people are buying more, gaining more wealth? Or how do we understand the the difference there and how people became more financially secure? Ah, well, so I think there, there are, as you say, it's nuanced. Um, so this was primarily, so it, maybe to sort of step back. So income, we usually think of as being sort of the the amount that that's coming in the mm-hmm. income, uh, whereas wealth is sort of the is the stock of the is the is the amount that you have is a sort of a good way of thinking about it, mm-hmm. and and so both were changing, 
And a good part of the reason why I was focusing so much on spending versus income is essentially kind of if you're spending less than your income, then the the amount the difference gets added to the amount that you uh, own. Uh, or for a different way, if you owe money, if you have a negative net wealth, it reduces the amount of your negative net wealth. Mm -hmm. And so sort of one of the reasons I talk a lot about, for example, credit card debt is many, many people owe credit card debt. It's quite expensive debt in general. Mm -hmm. And so if you go, if you reduce your credit card debt by several thousand dollars, that actually makes a big difference because you no longer have a constant monthly uh, negative interest payment that you have to make out, which reduces the amount of income you have because you have to use your current income to make that. And it allows you to spend to either save more or spend more. So uh one of the one of the ways to think about kind of the differences that were occurring were that the the aid really did help incomes both go up a little bit. So if you got an economic impact payment, uh, for example, your income went up. Mm -hmm. And for low-income people, so somebody earning $30,000, a $1,000 economic impact payment, or maybe maybe both people earn, maybe there are two adults in the household and a child, that's $2,500 perhaps for that economic impact payment. That that happens several times, and so we're talking about a fairly large amount of money for somebody earning thirty or forty thousand yeah. uh, dollars. Same thing for unemployment insurance. If you lose your job and are suddenly getting six hundred dollars a week on top of the regular unemployment insurance, many people are actually earning more per week yeah. than they would have been otherwise. Right. Uh, now that didn't last very long, I should say. It ended in July 20, 2020, mm -hmm. uh, and later bills kind of reduce the amount that they were adding. And so the extra amount, but it meant that for many people, their income were actually went up, even though they weren't unemployed. So income goes up. That's one piece of it. The, the other piece is, of course, well, okay, you're spending less. And so that that difference means that your that people's wealth went up. So there was this big kind of like accumulation of savings. Mm. And there are lots of studies that actually that look really closely. So J.P. Morgan Chase Institute has done some really great work looking at how individual savings accounts increase during the pandemic and kind of charting what happens as unemployment insurance checks changed or as economic impact payments came in. And effectively, kind of what happened is those went into savings accounts and then people made choices over time about how to spend and sort of that were related to how they wanted to live their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and that caused a bunch of big consequences later on that we're still dealing with, including things like inflation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll come to inflation <laughs> a little bit later. Okay, so let me uh, let me do some, uh, I guess, some some of the uh, setup here. So we, we've kind of talked a little bit about it, so we can just go a little bit uh, deeper. So before, so March, usually first, second week of March, um, and so at the time we're recording this, it's exactly three years uh, um, to the week, I guess, of when things kind of shut down and then mm -hmm. schools shut down and everything was kind of really, everyone's at home because you were saying, I mean, I was the same way. I was at home, didn't go anywhere, you know, I didn't go outside and check my mail, you know, <laughs> I'd seen too many movies. I was like, oh no, it's going to get at me. Um, and yeah, it's a big worry. It's a big fear. We, mm -hmm. we, we were kind of literally, you know, uh, in the dark on all of this. Yeah. Know, so well, I, 
I did you wipe down your groceries or wipe down? I mean, I I I know people who wipe down their mail, and this is just to be clear. This is not to be making fun, but we just didn't know. Uh, No, I did the same thing. Yeah, I I remember sewing, uh, sewing masks. I think that that third week in March, out of a bad pill, out of an old pillowcase with my wife. These were awful masks. I uh, (laughs) we later figured out how to get some better ones, (laughs) but I mean, I don't know. I don't. They probably. I think we've learned we're we're not actually all that helpful. No, but we didn't know. No, at the time. Well, we can we can come to that whole thing as well. I guess I, I hate this kind of. I guess it's not Monday morning quarterback, but you know the same idea of of how people are looking at things now, and it's like, you know, it, it's it's quite silly, I think, to to do that. But but yeah, I, I did all that stuff. I mean, I was I was very compliant, and I was very worried. And and then you know you're seeing stuff, you know, in Italy where it was really bad. I remember that variant mm-hmm. in Italy it was just, or, or or the whatever the strain was in Italy it was terrible it was it was awful uh very very worrisome so yeah all that stuff but i guess <clears throat> so before that what was i guess the state of the u.s economy now I, this is gonna it's an important point for the pandemic and for the book but also it's gonna serve two functions here because now we have where uh so i guess 2019 yeah it's 2020 mm-hmm. it was too early so 2019 you know this is the third year of trump administration going into his final year the fourth year um and you know usually you need some years to kind of on an economic side right to see the impact and things like that you know pre-pandemic so just 2019 what was the state of where we're at what was employment and unemployment looking like what would real wages inflation etc what was all this kind of you know what was the economy we're we're sitting on when the mm-hmm. pandemic hit? Just kind of give us the context. Well, so I, I think in it, it's I, I think the best way to think of think of it is there were sort of two sides to the economy, um, and one on, on one side it looked really good. Uh, so up to about 2019, we'd had approximately 10 years of more or less continuous economic growth. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, but a good way of thinking about that is that's partly because coming out of the Great Recession, we had really high unemployment. And so it just took a long time for the unemployment rate to come down and to sort of, and to bring more people into work and into the economy. So that's that's really good. And GDP had been increasing. Things looked really stable. Things were sort of uh, uh, had been increasing pretty steadily. Uh, inflation was really low. Uh, and things in the so things were looking really stable. Okay, so that's sort of the big macro economy piece of it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really worth remembering that kind of underneath that big macro economy, lots of people were not doing very well. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I, I work really hard on is trying to understand how do people make ends meet, and how often is not making is having difficulty happen. What how prepared are people for shocks and things like that? So one of the surveys I ran in 2019. Uh, had something had approximately forty percent of people had had a difficulty paying a bill or expense. Now, I, I should say what what people think is a difficulty or paying a bill or expense is sort of their own. So, for some people, that might be maybe I had to use a credit card. For other people, it meant I had to skip five meals and I went. I had to get a payday loan. Right. So, th- this is sort of a. But it, it does help us get a sense of that sort of are people making. Running into pro- the financial problems in their lives mm-hmm. that keep them from doing the things they want in their life, and are 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 they have are they having to change 
things that they like? Are they having to make adjustments? Mm -hmm. And the thing about that 40% is that is that even quite high income people have problems. So about 20% of people who are earning about over 100,000 were still having problems making uh, making ends meet on occasion. But the lower income you get, the more likely it is. So uh, more than half of people earning, say, below uh, 40 or 50,000 had had at least a had had at least one time, and some had many times, and they just couldn't make the bills match. Mm -hmm. So I think kind of the, the, a good way of thinking about it is that there are sort of two different pieces of the economy. On one side, it looked really good. Stock market was high. If you want to use that as an example, uh, the uh, inflation was low. On the other side, we had this sort of continuous economic fragility for many, many people in the U.S. economy. So let me ask you about this because it's something I I wonder about often, and, and every administration you know goes on and on about it. So it's not really unique to one or the other per se. But what's a good, or what are some good metrics of how the health or um, you know dysfunction of an economy is? So you'll see administrations say we've had another record months of jobs it's the most out of every you know last 50 years and all these things and and that doesn't really say anything to me it's mm -hmm. like it's great if people are getting jobs but in terms of why what's the context what i have more questions it doesn't you know that spike on that bar graph doesn't really translate to anything or the lowest unemployment, which is 3.9% in the last 50 years. Again, right? People talk about like, well, people aren't looking for jobs. They've dropped out. They can't, you know, there's all these other things. That's not real unemployment. That's just the number we use. The real unemployment's actually still whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, so on and so forth. Or, you know, stocks are really high or GDP is it or whatever it is. What it, for you, if you're, I mean, maybe you're, you're kind of in this every day. So maybe you're too close to it. But for the average person, What's like kind of like a good or or a few good metrics to say, yeah, that things are doing pretty well. Uh, you know, this is a shows a good, healthy economy because then other people would say, well, this this is not really this is misleading because it really is, you know, these issues are going to it's going to come hit us in six months or so. How do you really kind of look at this kind of stuff to interpret? OK, yeah, things are going pretty well or they're OK. Well, so first, just to acknowledge, there are lots of different ways to look at it. And uh -huh. in some ways, when you choose a particular way, you're you're sort of choosing something, you're saying, this is the thing that matters, and maybe these other things don't. And I don't think any of us believe that only this one thing matters. Sure. It, it's more about our people thriving in, a, in an economy. Mm -hmm. And thriving in an economy is sort of complicated. But honestly, I think a really good one that summarizes a lot of sort of how how an economy is sort of treating and bringing everybody along mm -hmm. is something like the black employment rate. Okay. And the reason I use that one is uh, one of the things that I think that just sort of happens in our economy is unfortunately, uh, there's a there's sort of this phenomenon of uh, first, uh, last hired, first fired, um, where sort of it and there's a little bit more complication to that. That's not quite the dynamic, but essentially, uh, uh, African Americans, black, uh, black people are are employed less less frequently. They are often employed at lower rates, and a lot of that is actually because of uh, uh, is because of our incarceration system. Not all of it, of course. Uh, and so, the more an economy is really working for everybody, the more it's going to bring in people who 
otherwise might struggle to get a job. And so when we're having an economy that's really working well, it's it's really bringing in all of the people who might have a felony on their on on their record or maybe have some sort of are differently able, maybe have to maybe there has to be some accommodation for the way they can work. But that's all right because they're they're going to be a great employee, but the employer has to work a little bit harder and might not if they've got 10 other people coming out the door, but when they've only got two, maybe they're going to take the extra step to be uh, to really bring that person in. And so when we've got an economy that's working really well, it's going to bring everybody in. Mm. Now, that's just one of them. That's just one example. I mean, that doesn't summarize whether people are getting good jobs. It just tells us whether people are getting a job. And I think we'd all rather people have great jobs that were bringing everybody in and kind of lifting everybody up. But if you're looking for sort of one measure, I think that's a pretty good one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I never heard that before, but I I get the logic. It makes sense because it's saying... Um, that you know, fo- focus a, a certain group that's typically or population is typically on the short end of the stick. Unfortunately, if they're if we're seeing an increase there, you can have some inference again, so the only one data point that you know other folks, other groups are are usually doing better if it's if it's that way. I, I get the logic; it makes it, it makes some it, sense. Yeah, and then th- that's in some senses that that it it, that it helps. It it uh, it's not because one should only care about African Americans. Sure, sure. But it's sure. good, but it's that it, but that if you're sort of looking at at what's happening with them, and if they're doing really well, the the hope is that then Hispanic Americans are also doing well. And other in low-income Americans might be doing well because it's so it's a sort of a it's a good indicator just if you're looking for just one. But of course, it's not that we don't care about how GDP is doing or or how wages are doing or if uh, if other people are employed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk about what happened during the pandemic. We've already mentioned it, but let's talk about a little more specifics. So there's three, three things here. They're obviously related, but different. So you mentioned the, uh, the states, uh, uh, some of the states basically just getting overloaded with unemployment, uh, Mm -hmm. claims that were filed. Uh, you mentioned it, so maybe you could chat a little bit about that. Um, and then uh, you can talk about GDP and how the GDP and stocks fell and how bad was it in, in 2020 and, and what that was globally. Um, and then I, I do want to ask about the spending. So maybe just get those two first and I'll ask about the spending piece. Okay. Well, so I think a good way of thinking about it is this what that starting in the middle of March, as all of these businesses shut down, as we sort of as people sent or furloughed or sent home to work, try to work from home, and as businesses shut down, that was probably the biggest economic decline we've ever seen in the shortest amount of time. And, and what I mean by that is not not that it was not that the pandemic was the worst economy ever, but that those three month, those two or three months were probably the deepest that we've ever seen. And, and you can kind of see that. I have a great chart in my book of sort of unemployment insurance claims mm-hmm. uh, and kind of how they go up from about 200,000 in normal to 2 million and then 6 million and then 6 million again. And they start going down eventually, but that's because everybody who kind of was going to be fired has been fired. Mm-hmm. And the thing about that graph is that when you look, when you Put on that graph what happened in the Great Recession, or in 2001, or even 1981, which was a really deep recession. Yeah. You kind of can't even see them; they're just sort of not. The the the, the Great that the pandemic decline was just so much larger. Mm-hmm. So there was this really deep decline, 
Uh, and that that happened in in things like GDP. I, I mentioned it went down by about nine uh, percent uh, you know, between uh, one uh, quarter one and quarter two. It happened in stock markets. This where people looked and think, "Oh my!" And so I think the stock market uh, sort of broadly defined it went down by about uh, 35 percent uh, from kind of mid February to uh, mid April. Uh, so there's this big decline. Yeah, and th- so this is in the U.S., but this is obviously happening everywhere globally, yeah. and there's yeah. implications for this. This is happening in, for China. This is happening in Germany, U.K., Italy, Spain, and all the major kind of uh, big economies. So, so I mean, I guess, <laughs> and how was how were things just kind of floating along, right? Because I mean, I think there was a big worry that, like, man, are are we really fucked? Because like, is 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 it just going to completely just bottom? Like, are we just going to start at zero again? Like, it, it was just, I mean, so to speak, like, people were very worried about this. I, I was too. I, so I, I will admit kind of the, the combination of studying how people deal with fragility, with sort of problems in their economic lives and just understanding how many people weren't prepared and being an economist asked to sort of like just understand what was going on. I was terrified. I mean, just, just, uh, it, it looked it looked really, really scary. Uh, and I, I think it's sort of, it, it, it's maybe hard to convey just how scary things were in say the third week of April, of March uh, and, and through April for economists because it, things bounced, in some ways bounced back pretty quickly, but it wasn't obvious that that was going to happen. Uh, and uh as you say, I mean, I, I, I kind of, it was just terrifying. I'm not, not sure how to say much more than that. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, it, it's one of those times when being, the more you are in the know, the more scary it seemed because yeah, right, uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, so I, I talk about it briefly in the book, but there were some financial crisis jitters that were kind of maybe going to happen. Uh, treasury markets were occasionally seizing up. I, uh, and it didn't end up being being a full blown financial crisis, but that wasn't obvious that that wasn't going to happen uh, in the moment. Uh, and so people were really scared in, in the policy community. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I mean, everyone was was terrified because it was it was just this great unknown. No one had no idea what was going to happen, and we, you know, I mean, everybody um, except for very obviously young people, but everyone remembers. 0809 I mean that wasn't mm-hmm. that long ago it was 12 years at the time you know and so everyone's like oh we just did this oh my god and it was terrible and we know now that uh the great recession was probably I think economically worse than the great depression no or, or excuse me the the stock market crash of 29 and everything yeah well I, so I don't want to kind of uh the 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 first say quarter or two if you kind of stack them up against each other, the pandemic was worse. But of course, the pandemic the pandemic recession only lasted for two months. If you sort of want to put it, yeah. whereas the Great Depression continued for for uh, ten years, our, the Great Recession for several years, although unemployment was still high. Mm-hmm. So, in, in some ways, it's that big bounce back that's mm-hmm. sort of the key. It was terrifying, and then. Not over because it was a long road back to normal, but didn't last long. Uh, that the the real terror. Yeah, well, I think that's the. I mean, the biggest difference here with with the pandemic uh, recession. I guess I'm, I have this question here. So, so you're saying that for for individuals or for many individual Americans, they stopped spending, 
right? Or they stop, you know, they're not eating out. They're not buying stuff. No one was going anywhere. They're all at home. Yeah, I'm sure you remember this. I remember in 08 where, 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 where Bush and the administration were like, just go out and spend money. Just put money into the economy. Go, go buy stuff. Go shopping. You remember this, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you remember this whole thing and it's like, it stimulates the economy. Go, go, you know, spend lots of money. I mean, you don't have to give a, 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 a an attributional statement on whether that's right or wrong or whatever, but isn't it, didn't it hurt the economy or businesses if people weren't spending money within our, our system or, or, or how, how does, how does that work? So, okay. So this is one of the really fat. So I, I apologize. This is going to get just a little wonky because you sort Go of ahead. can't help Go getting ahead. wonky with Go this ahead. kind of thing. So this is one of those things where the pandemic economy was really weird for the first six months because in some ways kind of you didn't want people the reason people weren't spending is because we didn't want people going out to bars where they without wearing masks where they could shout at each other and spread respiratory droplets so kind of that the economic fall was intentional it was it was a an induced coma is the way i think it was a pretty good description that i think some people used Mm. so the a lot of the pandemic relief wasn't so much a stimulus in that in that sense is that we weren't we you didn't want people to go out and go to bars and again what you wanted people was to be fine so they could get food so that they weren't going to go hungry uh so I, I like this. I'm going to. So this was. Uh, this is going to tribute to Paul Krugman because I think it's. A, it was a good way that uh, he described the economic impact payments as uh, pandemic relief with a side of stimulus. Um, <laughs> that it that it was just it, it, that the stimulus was kind of beside the point mm. for a lot of the pandemic relief. Mm. Now that that sort of shifted as the pandemic went on. And as we started to get uh, vaccines and as started, people could go back out, then it becomes a little bit of a different calculus and it becomes our, we want to give people money so they can go out and spend it because then businesses can reopen and employ people again. And it's not, it wasn't so much about the relief because we weren't intentionally keeping our economy in a coma to try to halt the spread of the, uh, of the virus. And that's just such a different thing from a normal recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, and normal recessions have kind of complex causes, so I don't want to claim that it's a – but often it's just insufficient demand. And so if you can give some people more money and get them to spend more, that can kind of help make businesses want to invest more. Mm-hmm. A totally different economy mm-hmm. and, a, and a weird one and kind of an interesting one for an economist. Uh, so the – Economics profession is sometimes called the uh, the dismal science, um, and we, uh, in some ways we like to joke that kind of the things that economists study and the things that kind of help us better understand the way things work are often awful things. I mean, a, a lot of modern economics comes from the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, that's that's not a great, uh, uh, <laughs> but it, but it, I think we like to think of it as it, by studying the things that are awful we hopefully can give ideas for how to prevent future awful things. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make a, a, a cross uh, example here. It's the same way in, in, in my field in psychology. Uh, we're always talking about your disorders and how your you know, pathology and all of these things. There's so much so that for, for much of it, you know, and this all originated from, you know, <clears throat> Freud's work on, you know, hysteria, neuroticism, and then it just kept going, right? And behaviorism was a very, you know, kind of cynical way. You have to correct 
you know, bad, poor behaviors, et cetera. So much that in the early 2000s, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, there was this movement of like positive psychology, right? Which mm-hmm. was, we're just depressing all the time. We're just talking about what's wrong with you and how you're disordered. And it's just like, well, what about other things? There's other things about human life. Um, maybe it's it's not quite the same, but it sounds a little bit similar. Like all this stuff comes from a depressive, from the depression of all of these economic theories. And you're just kind of continuously using that as like the model. But there are other frameworks, no? Uh, there are. And it's not that economists always study downer things. It's just that sometimes the things that give us the best insights are when when some people get something and other people don't for some reason mm-hmm. that that helps you understand well what's the what's the benefit of that thing but it kind of meant that some people didn't get the thing and if it's a good thing they didn't get it um so for example what i'm just describing actually is would be something like a randomized control trial in a drug trial mm-hmm. i i don't know if you're giving a potentially life-saving vaccine of that vaccine is a good one but well, uh, cancer treatment just as an example some people aren't getting that treatment right but you're learning something and and maybe it's not life-saving. So, I mean, it's not like the people who are, get, who are getting the actual treatment are necessarily better off. If you don't know, it's still worth learning. Economics has a somewhat similar thing where we learn things, but part of the way we learn things is when people are treated unequally mm-hmm. or when bad things happen. Sometimes we learn when good things happen, but I don't know. I, the, the, uh, success has many uh, authors. I'm not sure if I'm getting the. Uh, uh, I, I, I apologize. I'm not getting the quite the quotation right, but uh, yeah. I know I know you're talking about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's 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 interesting how how these things work. Where you look at times of distress to see, okay, where's things kind of you know sift out of sorts. So I guess well, before we get to the CARES Act, I guess we've been talking about you know, spending and saving and paying down credit card debt. I guess this is a general question, but how how do Americans, I think you had said you had done some surveys and things like that. How do Americans typically spend their money like on, on household expenses or, you know, whether it's with the housing market and if they're getting homes or whatever, or how do they typically manage financial burdens or prepare for any financial shock? So, so what was this that they were all like, what are all these things they have to pay? Like, what is it? You know, obviously there's credit card debt, but what are the other things that people were trying to get caught up on? Or this is a good, you know, breaking point for us to save a little more. Talk a little bit more specifically about what it was. Yeah. Well, so first, just sort of dividing things up. Sort of the what happens during the pandemic is a little weird. And uh, but before the pandemic, kind of a, a good way of thinking about kind of a household budget is that sort of about a third of it goes to housing expenses. And that's on average. Some people spend a lot more, some people spend somewhat less, but about a third is kind of the is the average. Uh, and a third is actually is a fair amount when you sort of when you break down what people are spending, well, that means that sort of everything else has to adjust around that. Uh, and one of the things that I think is sort of I at least come up with a conclusion if we we may get there eventually, that the when you have a big piece of your budget that's fixed and housing is really expensive. So uh, I think you live in Maryland, I live in DC, we were just sort of housing is expensive in this area, yes, but it's expensive so. in lots of part of the country. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. And so I don't want to claim kind of like it, we're, we're unique, but it's one of the things that sort of, I think, consumes a lot of people's budgets in ways that tremendously uh, 
And the thing about housing in particular is that it's not like you can cut housing easily. You you can move, but that's going to be really expensive. And if you move, I don't know, your kids are going to have to go to a new school. I mean, I th- that's a hot, hard thing. Mm-hmm. So your housing costs are just really fixed. And so everything else in your budget kind of has to adjust around that. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of other things that aren't per- that are smaller I- items, but are are still pretty fixed. Uh, you probably still need to pay uh, your auto loan if you have one, or your credit card debt if you have one. Uh, partly because you might have to, you probably need to drive to work. And if you can't get to work, then you can't earn your income and you can't pay for your housing. Right. Uh, th- childcare is a somewhat similar that you, you need to have your childcare. And right. if you don't have, if you can't, don't pay your childcare, then you can't go to work. Mm-hmm. And that, so what that means is that many, many households have a, have relatively little ability to adjust just directly in their spending. They have some. Uh, in some senses, the pandemic showed us where a, bu- where a bunch of that adjustment can come from. Whether you want to or not is a different question, but <laughs> can decide to go out to restaurant and not to go out to restaurants. Right, right. But m- many people who are already having problems have already cut that. And it's just really hard to cut much beyond that kind of spending. And that leaves a lot of households just very fragile uh, because one shock or two shocks can set them down into a real problem where they're having to make some really costly choices. Mm. Um, So that's one piece of it. But I think the other piece is just, I think we're exposed to more financial sort of, I'll call them shocks because this is the way the economics literature thinks about them, but just bad things that happen in your life that cause, that cost money or where you, or you earn less money. Uh, so things like your car breaking down, mm-hmm. things like suddenly you need to find a new childcare provider, things like uh, your big medical expense, mm-hmm. all of those are sort of unexpected, but they just take money out of your budget and they mean that you got to kind of come up with some money at some point. Mm-hmm. And that makes it really hard because you've got this sort of, you've, you've got these two different things going on. You've got the high sort of fixed expenses from really expensive housing and other things. Plus, big need to spend every once in a while because all of the bad things that happen. And those can often lead up to people having real problems in their lives. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, that 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 all tracks. <laughs> um yeah, it, in 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 our uh in our house we we have to budget uh you know, a certain amount. It's not a crazy amount, but it's a decent amount for <laughs> financial shock, right? It's is always you we 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 got so used to every month we would budget, okay, here's all the things we got to pay, and here's, you know, stuff for, you know, entertainment or food or whatever. And, but then there was always every month without fail, something that would pop up, something mm-hmm. would come up, you know, could be a thousand dollars, could be $200, didn't matter. And so we, we had to say, okay, uh, we just have to start budgeting for this. And if nothing happens, then extra money, or we just leave it for the next month or whatever. But getting that piece instantiated into the budget was like figuring that out took a couple years just to to figure out that that was a thing we should budget for almost like another bill but just like it's always it's like a it's like a 
you know, if you're playing a board game or something, it's like a question mark and you don't know which kind of uh, category it's in. That's basically what it felt like. It was mm-hmm. just money that would have to <laughs> sit there and be like, well, if something happens, we have something. Because, uh, you know, at the time, you know, you can get a lot of folks can get caught, you know, flat footed where it's like, mm-hmm. I budget it too close to be right to the edge. And I need to fix this exhaust pipe. And if I don't, I I just, I got to find it. So then what a lot of people do is they'll, you know, try to find a deal or do it cheaper or ask someone for money or whatever. And so if you want to be completely autonomous or independent or try to be having to budget for, you know, this is kind of risk management, I guess, but you're, just try, you're trying to budget for the, the un the thing that might or hasn't happened, but maybe, and you know, it's just, it was a strange thing to do, but. Yeah, going that way kind of made things better. Do you keep that money in a separate account? I'm I'm interested as a, Uh, or is it sort of... I think we've done that before. I think we've played with it where we have a separate account. But I think most of the time we would just have it in the same account and we would just track and we would figure it out. But I think sometimes what you could do is you could, um, you know, now accounts you can just transfer now on apps Mm -hmm. and online. So back in the older days, (laughs) you think there was an account at one point. Um, but now you can just, you can have that or you can just transfer and it's a little bit easier. So, um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes, but I think now we just keep everything in a couple of places. Because one of the things that sort of financial, uh, people who sort of help, help people deal with their finances, uh, financial counselors is sort of one is often it's useful to sort of have a kind of a a money set aside sort of specifically for those emergencies. Mm -hmm. Uh, and one of the things I actually find really interesting is actually understanding, how much do people plan for that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it turns out that one of the sort of indicators of being able to kind of deal with stuff is having some liquid savings. Mm-hmm. And even if you aren't sort of saying this is only for that, at least sort of having enough liquid savings so that you can deal with the stuff that's going to come up. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think I talked a little earlier, one of the problems that I was sort of seeing in March 2020 is I knew just how fragile people were. Uh, so uh, one of the surveys I'd been doing, uh, I think, uh, and I was just looking it up so I could get the right uh, uh, number, that uh, two out of five families couldn't cover their uh, expenses for more than a month if they lost their main source of income in 2019. So kind of, so one of you loses their job. and they suddenly expenses were just going to have to be cut within a month. And that just gives you a sense about kind of like the, the real fragility that was going on Sure, because uh, particularly as every, as lots of people lost their jobs in March and May, in March and April, 2020, lots of people it looked like were going to have to start making really big adjustments in their spending or borrowing or borrowing from friends and family. And that was all just going to spread out. Yeah, it's 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 interesting how I think one of the things, I guess one of the takeaways, I guess, one of the positive, if you will, if you want to say it that way, or of the pandemic is it really did push people in different categories to just create better norms about things. And mm-hmm. I think better norms financially. Again, we'll get to it, I guess, but the you know the economy now is interesting. I'm I'm sure you have thoughts about where it's at now, but you know. More or less, I mean, we have better, I think, health norms now, obviously. <clears throat> we'll see how long we keep those up, how long that lasts. I think maybe people have better, uh, personally, maybe have better financial norms. And there's all these just different ways that I think people, things we learn from 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 big events like that. Let's, uh, let's talk about the CARES Act. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to 
I'm going to give a preamble to this. So I'm going to show my liberal bona fides here. <sighs> People critique me for not being liberal enough or, you know, I'm too moderate or things like that, which, you know, it's always amusing for me. To me, I think in general, but especially in emergencies, you need a strong centralized federal government uh, to really push things along. And, uh, you know, people disagree about that, you know, the role of government, how big or whatever. But I mean, I'm a big believer in that. I'm very Hamiltonian. You know, I'm, I like strong central federal government. Um, so for all the, the liberals that are listening, they're like, uh, yeah, duh, of course. Yeah. I mean, but for any of the conservative friends I have, they're like rolling their eyes right now. <laughs> um, so to me, and we've had other periods. So kind of going to the economic thing, we've had periods with, uh, certain, uh, presidents, uh, or administrations that have pretty intentionally chosen not to use federal uh, uh, aid or dollars, <clears throat> Hoover, uh, excuse me. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and other people. And so I want to say up front, people can have whatever opinions they have about, uh, you know, president Trump and the Trump administration, but the cares act was signed end of March, 2020, right? End of March. It was a bipartisan, a bipartisan, uh, right? quick. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so, Again, I think that there's something that needs to be said about that. We historically have, you know, again, there's plenty of other presidents that, you know, again, different situations and circumstances, but in emergencies or financial or economic emergencies, people, there have been administrations or, or um, folk leaders that have, you know, tried to not use federal uh, intervention and uh, mm -hmm. federal funds. That didn't happen, thankfully. I think if that had happened this time, we would have been really terrible we would have been in really bad shape um people would have been really 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 hurting so i guess maybe just say kind of a, from your estimation how the cares act came to be you know how to be and so i mean quick and um and then you can just go into the specifics of it um you know with with there's a lot of there's a lot of money that was given i mean again a lot of money which again for most you know uh, typically, you know, conservatives and for Republicans, I mean, Trump is part of the Republican Party. This is unheard of. Like, that just doesn't happen. So just kind of tell us how, I guess, this kind of came to be, and then you can get into the specifics of, of what it did. Yeah. Well, first, just as a, uh, I, I think if you're really interested in sort of understanding some of the politics behind and sort of who was making decisions and how, uh, there's a really great book, um, Trillion Dollar Triage. Trillion dollar triage. It's got a great alliteration uh, by Nick Timuros, who's a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, I believe, who's just reporting on all the Fed stuff and the uh, the deals that Marco Rubio was making in the in a conference room for the to get the PPP, and that Steve Mnuchin was sort of working on, and how they were communicating with uh, congressional leaders, which I, I found really fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to partly admit that sort of my relative expertise isn't in the that part of it sure, sure. Uh, but i think it i think in in many ways what was coming out of italy uh and then what was happening in new york early in march in seattle yeah. i think it sharpened a lot of minds mm -hmm. it, it it really got people thinking oh gosh this is going to be a, this is really scary yeah including on capitol hill and it turns out that when you get a lot of people who 
maybe they don't always agree together, agree on a lot of things, but they can agree that this big thing is really scary and this is a bad thing for the U.S. and for our people, maybe a lot can happen. And yeah, it's, it's it's like that wave you see and you know it's going to hit. You're, yeah. and you're And you're bracing for it. I remember that because when the few cases in New York and you're like, shit, this is going to hit and it's going to hit New York. And oh my, I mean, people could see the writing on the wall. And I, and I think, I think you're right about that. People were like, okay, let's, let's, let's get, let's get going here. Let's, you know, kind of, yeah, I, I agree with that sharpening up and saying, okay, how do we try to sort of brace for impact, not get hit too hard or something like that. But but I think it's worthwhile just sort of saying kind of like that sharpening of minds compared to the Great Recession when that didn't happen, uh-huh. or at least didn't happen in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I the the pandemic was sharper economically, but the, the Great Recession was clearly much more devastating economically. It just lasted yeah. for much longer. Yeah. And yet we didn't have that sharpening of minds. Yeah. Yeah. So in many ways, I think we sort of credit to the people who did put it together and did get together and did have did fo- get focused because it really did it really was transformative uh, for a lot of people. Well, um, I also wonder if because there is so recent oh eight oh nine was like oh man we really kind of dropped the ball on some of that let's mm-hmm. let's not do that again especially if this is unpredictable and we don't know what's going on. I wonder if there was a little, because a lot of, I mean, a handful, I mean, so many people in, in Congress were senators and, and uh, maybe representatives during 08, 09. So they, yeah. they really remember it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. One of the things I, uh, I found really interesting was these are also senators are not by and large, the youngest people around. <laughs> And the the sense in which sort of that not only was there sort of this going on, but there was a virus going around and how much of it sort of could have been if somebody key had come down with this devastating thing that we didn't know how to treat and we had very little, uh, what, what would have happened? And it really did seem like there was a surprising amount of, I'll call it serendipity, but uh, that that there was, uh, we were, I don't want to say lucky because that 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 assumes that 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 implies more than I think is fair. But it it, it was really impressive compared to what had happened in the Great Recession. Yeah. So so tell us what was what was in the CARES Act. I mean, there's a lot of the twelve hundred and the five hundred dollars, the six hundred dollar unemployment. You mentioned some of these. The SNAP expansion was huge. The mortgage forbearance. You know, the eviction moratorium, which went on forever. Uh, the small businesses loans, like what? Tell us all these things, and and what was the impact of of, of this stuff and the time frame in which they were they were put out. Yeah, well, so first, just an apology. I'm going to get a little wonky because you sort of can't get wonky. Oh. You can't you can't avoid go it ahead. a little bit. Go ahead, uh, go ahead. So the for, the Act was really massive, and I mean, I think that's that's just one thing just to sort of keep in your mind, and it, it kind of set the tone then. For several other bills, uh, including ones that were passed even just a month later to expand some of the programs in the CARES Act. Uh, but then there was a big bill that was passed in December 2020, and then another one in March uh, 2021. Most of what those bills did was sort of extending things that happened in the CARES mm-hmm. Act. Now, they did some other things that it's not that, but a lot of what sort of look, pandemic relief got really defined by the CARES Act. Mm-hmm. Um so I think kind of it's worth breaking them down just a little bit because I think yeah. because the different pieces. So 
the biggest amount that actually ended up getting spent was on what was called the Paycheck Protection Program, which was essentially the way it actually ended up working eventually, just a big grant, uh, a big grant program to virtually every small business. And I'm using uh, quotation marks uh, if, if you can't hear, uh, if, uh, if you can hear it. Uh, because small businesses were were businesses with under with 500 and under employees and a 500 business and 500 employee business is actually a pretty big business yeah uh, in, re- relatively speaking yeah uh and in fact most of the money ended up going to kind of those biggest businesses uh, then that sort of makes sense those were the ones with the biggest pay uh, payroll so in many ways this the paycheck protection program helped gave small grants to lots of very small businesses and very, very big grants to some not so small businesses that maybe didn't need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we, the, the economics is sort of pretty clear on that, that we could have probably spent half of the paycheck protection price. So uh, it, we, we, put, we spent about $800 billion all told throughout the bills uh, because then at half, it had exactly the same effect. So not not sort of losing any of the keeping that small French bistro alive or the uh, or the daycare. Uh, th- we could have helped all of those at at least half the price mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of it just went to pretty high income people who are the ones who happen to own a small business. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was a big piece of it. The thing that I think most people saw because uh, what were those economic impact payments? So th- those were uh, twelve hundred dollars to adults and five hundred dollars to children, uh, and you they they were sort of you got them if you were earning uh, seventy five thousand dollars or less. Uh, it kind of phased out uh, from about se- uh, above seventy five thousand uh, dollars. So. And it turns out that the, when the median income is around, uh, I believe it's sixty thousand. Although I've lost, I, I, I should look that up again. Uh, most people are earning less than that, and so most people ended up getting an economic impact payment. Uh, later bills then added some additional money on, so there was about I think six hundred dollars in December in December twenty twenty, and uh, fourteen hundred dollars in the uh, March twenty twenty one bill. So sort of a, an additional sort of. Uh, amounts of money. And those were just sort of, they were just checks mailed out to people. Uh, So, but really kind of the star of what I think of the sort of pandemic policy show, the kind of the the thing that made the biggest obvious difference uh, were the expanded unemployment benefits. Uh, So first sort of, if you haven't sort of paid attention to to unemployment a policy. It kind of unemployment policy is kind of complicated, but kind of effectively, if you're employed and get fired, so you can't quit. This isn't if you quit, you have to get fired. You're eligible generally for unemployment benefits that are paid by your state. And it varies from state to state how much you sort of can get, but typically states will will give you something like 50% of your income uh, for up to 26 weeks. So kind of you know you get some you get some money you're not entirely zero but fifty percent is a big cut and it cuts off after uh, after about a year. What the what the big what the big CARES Act did was it both brought a lot more people in. So for example, uh, gig workers, people uh, who drove Ubers, were suddenly uh, suddenly eligible, and they hadn't been eligible before because they're effectively just contractors in the way that uh, Uber or Lyft employ them. So it brought them in. 
that's really exciting because it meant that people who, for example, couldn't drive for Uber because nobody was going anywhere suddenly had some income support. It extended the length of time that you were eligible. Uh, and it and it gave this big top up at an initial six hundred dollars per week, which is a big deal given that uh, the I think the um, the average uh, it w- 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 really did increase a lot of people's income. Yeah. Uh, later later acts and later things did extend that a little bit. That 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 big six hundred dollar ended in July twenty twenty. Uh, there were some, th- but later acts actually added another three hundred dollars to sort of. Uh, smooth things over for a little while. Uh, there were also a bunch of important programs that help people with uh, various loans. So I'm not sure if you have student loans. Oh, you know I do. Oh, okay. Well, you probably haven't been paying anything on them for the last three years uh, because the CARES Act just paused all student loan payments mm-hmm. uh, just automatically uh, for federal student loans, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so I have, I have paid my student loans throughout, but the nice thing is I have no interest. So I'm actually paying down what I need to pay down, which is, right. which is, which is, I mean, for people that don't have student loans, I mean, you literally, and I pay, quite a quite a quite a uh, large amount every month i basically have been paying down like my student loan so it's less um and really i mean there are some loans that i have that i'm you know over half paid which mm-hmm. is nice um yeah so i mean in that way it, it made you know because mine's you know very large uh you know getting getting a doctorate you know it take it can it can take some <laughs> some money out of you uh on loans so i think that was super helpful in that way but yeah there's super helpful for people that were literally just full stop pause and that yeah. i mean there's people that pay over a thousand dollars a month on student loans mm-hmm. and so and if you if they were having a problem right. they just they they didn't have to pay and they right. weren't earning interest and it wasn't and it wasn't like going on their credit record as they weren't paying so it was yeah, just as if the student loans were frozen yeah it's not like a forbearance or anything like that if i remember correctly it was just frozen it was just mm-hmm. paused which you know, I think was super helpful because even if even if you're paying four hundred dollars a month on student loans, that's still four hundred dollars you could pay for a lot of things. I mean, that's very 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 helpful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, that was huge. Yeah. So uh, uh, there was a somewhat similar program for uh, more, what was called mortgage forbearance. And that wasn't quite, it wasn't as if more, you didn't have to start paying your mortgage, period. But essentially, people who were ha- who were having some problems could tell their loan, their loan servicer, uh, their lender, I'm having problems, I want to have some mortgage forbearance, and could have essentially their loans just paused, and so the loan payments paused for usually about 18 months. It depended a little bit on the particular uh, uh the, the particular lender and, and who was backing the loan. Uh, but that meant that if you were having problems, I mean, your the, your mortgage is typically, if you have a, if you own a home, your biggest expense each month. Mm-hmm. And the ability to say, okay, I can't pay this right now. I've lost my job. I'm going to, I'm going to work something out with my lender and be able to really work that out was a big deal. I, I should say, Somewhat unlike student loan payments, the mortgage uh, typically the, the way it would work out was after the after forbearance ended, the uh, the borrower the, and the lender would sort of work out something, which would typically mean kind of the amount that was still owed would get 
uh, added to the end of the loan. So you still the the lender w- was still getting the money back eventually. It wasn't as if the mortgage just disappeared, but it gave a lot of people a whole lot of flexibility. Uh, and I think the evidence is actually pretty clear that it it, it really helped with some complex inequalities that had happened. Um, and maybe I should just sort of the reason that we care, uh, reason I pay pay a lot of attention to that is during the Great Recession. Lots of Hispanic and Black borrowers lost their homes and lost their equity, and and so it really wiped out a a generation wealth uh, because that was where a lot of their wealth was, and they couldn't they couldn't work it out, and so all those foreclosures were somebody losing their home who had perhaps some equity, and that was their life savings in it, and so that that, that didn't happen now, and that didn't happen during the pandemic was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Anything else you want to mention? Like, I, like, like, I can talk about. I can keep on getting wonky, but I th- please go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say. I mean, obviously, there were other benefits for folks. I know there was um, other, I guess, welfare benefits. So the SNAP program was was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things, they had um, uh, an end date. No, mm-hmm. but then you you kind of talk about. Uh, some of the other acts. So I guess the so two questions here. Uh, we mentioned that end of March, this was signed, sealed, delivered, payments going out, you know, all that stuff. Um, how did it work so fast, uh, the CARES Act? And then after the CARES Act, you talk about the December 2020 pandemic relief bill um, that will help really helpful in unemployment relief. Uh, and then other things, rental assistance, education. As you said, you know the the, the CARES Act kind of set the tone, got the ball rolling, and everything. That was kind of like, you know, the reference point. And then the, the subsequent ones kind of just added on to it, or other things. So, how did it work so fast? And then how did how did other uh, relief bills, such as the one in December 2020 uh, and the one in 2021, um, you know, build on that, or or maybe extend these kind of deadlines or, or end dates, if you will, et cetera? Yeah. Well. Maybe a good way of thinking about it is at the end of March in 2020, we all thought things were going to be over. I mean, it looked like things were really scary, but it was the virus was going to be done when, in a month, right? We were going to go on a shutdown and then everybody was going to go back to school and work uh, by mid-April. Mm-hmm. And and so when when the CARES Act was passed, I think there was a, a widespread assumption that this wasn't going to la- last very long. And that, that sort of this was going to be the thing that needed to be done and needed to be done, but things were going to be over by midsummer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a lot of the way the CARES Act was designed was sort of under that assumption. And it turned out that things were not over by midsummer. Uh, and so then there was a real, th- a real thought, what's going to be the next stage of things? And that ended up being more complicated because the 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 in March – Minds had been sharpened. It was very clear that this was really scary. By July, it was clear that sort of this was going to be more complicated. It was going to go on for a while. And what what relief should look like became much more embedded in what politics should look like. And so it took until December for sort of the next round of things to actually happen. Um, and but what what those did was really kind of build on some of the benefits that the CARES Act had had put in, including more uh, expanding unemployment insurance. People weren't back to work yet. There wasn't yet a vaccine in uh, December. Well, there 
there was just a vaccine, but it wasn't spread out yet. I don't want to kind of, uh, but it would, but people hadn't really been getting it. It was clear there was going to be more unemployment. And so it gave more unemployment insurance and extended it for longer. Uh, the American Rescue Plan then in March 2021 also extended unemployment insurance and, and in, included another $300 increase. Uh, but between those times, between, say, July and December, there were some real gaps. And there were some programs that sort of filled those a little bit. But people actually did lose a bunch of unemployment insurance. Mm. And when they were unemployed, that was a big deal. And you can see there, there were a bunch of really interesting studies just showing spending went, go, went way down for people who lost unemployment insurance, lost, lost the extra unemployment insurance in August. So the later plans, kind of the later acts, kind of extended some of those things. They extended, for example, the Paycheck Protection. And then they did some new things. So you mentioned SNAP. Uh, that that was sort of started in CARES and sort of continued. And um, it's only just ending in uh, February 2022, some of the expanded benefits. Uh, the American Rescue Plan then actually tried to do a bunch of new things, tried to really change a bunch of things, things like uh, a refundable child tax credit, uh, which uh, went out to many people. Uh, and both the December and uh, and the March uh, 2021 bills actually finally got to eviction uh, to to rental relief. There had been some eviction moratoria, which were different, which were were actually mostly happening under a CDC order. Mm. Uh, but the problem with those is that they weren't really helping with the underlying problem, which is how do you pay for something when you don't have a job, for example, uh, which is something that mortgage forbearance could help with, but that only helps with people who have a mortgage, not for people who are renting. And so it wasn't until December 2020 that we actually got some real rental relief happening. So uh, let me let me ask this, I guess, I just kind of kind of go from a, I want to come to the American Rescue Plan Act, mm-hmm. uh, was also known as the COVID-19 stimulus package plan. I don't remember. They, these things all have like a million names. <laughs> I can't keep them straight. I think I'm told that what you do is you come up with the acronym that you want and then you try to figure out what the uh, so CARES Act. Uh, you then figure out coronavirus aid and recovery. Uh, you sort of figure out how to make it how to make it a good acronym, and then and then go the good then go the other way. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the the American Rescue Plan was. I don't know what the acronym was for that. Um, but so I remember, I think it was last year. I'm getting my years confused, but. How much was the CARES Act? Well, so again, admitting that there's a little bit of fudginess in sort of how we budget, it was about $2.2 trillion, although about $400 billion of that was Fed support that didn't end up being much used. So about $1.8 trillion. Yeah, yeah, $1.8 trillion. Yes. Get my numbers right there. Uh, when you're talking big numbers, talking numbers that big, you have to actually make sure that you're not getting confused. Yeah. So just under two trillion. Mm-hmm. The December 2020 bill package. How much was that? It was oh, less. Boy. So. I can't. Uh, I think it was one point nine. Uh, I know the I American call- Rescue Plan was one point nine. That one okay. was just under two trillion. So, anyways, I, I think as a total amount, I mean, rough estimates here that we had we had spent in a year five trillion. Roughly. I- yeah, and and just to be clear, not all of that went out in the year, but it was sort of we'd sort of budgeted. But, sure, right? Yeah. So I remember when we when in I'm up I'm up to 2021. 
what was the big plant? There was the other. I'm go back my... better. Was the yeah, sort of yes, the... that's right, that's right, that's right. Which wanted another two trillion, or roughly one point eight, or whatever. And this was the whole showdown with you know Mansion, and he was saying you know he wanted to take out the the uh, child um, uh, uh, poverty break because that was the big selling point for for Biden, who was the new president at the time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the American Rescue Plan ended child poverty. Now. That's such a definitive statement, um, and I know this has to be on metrics, but this so I'm, I'm bringing it up because this was a kind of new, um, not newer, this was another, a different element that was added um, mm-hmm. to this. It wasn't just straight uh, relief or stimulus. It was uh, another thing, and, and I think, you know, Biden getting elected right afterwards really wanted to you know, I mean, people kind of put their goodies in the in certain bill, big bills like that. I mean, that we've seen this happen a bunch of times, and that's a really important one. I mean, I, you know, I thought it was great, but later, um, when they were trying to do the bill back better, which was basically a another wish list of stuff. I mean, it was adding to, I mean, close to if not over seven trillion total in a year and a half. I mean, it was again budgeted out, but it's still a lot of money. That's mm-hmm. a lot of money. And I remember the big sticking point for Manchin, for whatever reason, was he wanted to take away the 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 credit for for childhood poverty and things like that. And, you know, people debate that. But I guess w- with the American Rescue Plan, you could talk about this bit of the childhood poverty thing. But what was, I guess, different from the other two, the one in, in March and the one in December of 2020? What was, I guess, the key differences with the American Rescue Plan? Yeah, well, so several differences. Uh, one is just where the economy was at that point, uh-huh. uh, just that it had been a year. And I think it was fairly clear kind of there was an end date that was actually kind of visible. Uh, people in March 2021, people were getting shots. It was rolling out slowly, but, but there was a real sense that sort of this was going to end. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, unlike the uh, the March, uh, the March 2020 CARES Act, when it when there was this sort of this economic coma because everything was shutting down because it, because we wanted to shut down, and so the question was how do we how do we protect people when we're intentionally shutting down the economy? In March 2021, it's how do we protect and make a better economy as we come out of this thing? Mm-hmm. And th- those are just very different economic. Sure. Problems in some yeah. sense, uh, and just just to sort of put in our mind. Uh, so much of what the American Rescue Plan did was uh, two different pieces. One were another set of payments to most people, ending at about seventy five thousand dollars again. Seventy, yeah, uh, seventy five thousand in income again. Uh, so there were a bunch of that. Also, extending unemployment, expanded unemployment insurance up to about September. Although some states ended earlier that summer, uh, so those were two big pieces. And then there was a, a sort of a grab bag that, which makes it sound, I don't know, when you're talking about that much money, that they, they, we are talking about substantial programs, but but a number of programs that were really aimed at trying to address some of the underlying inequalities that exist in the American system. Uh, and so uh, you mentioned um, uh, child poverty. Uh, well, one of the problems is that a lot of children w- do live in 
households that don't have large uh, a large amount of income uh, and kind of the way you sort of measure poverty is a little complicated but sort of effectively kind of how we measure it they're living in households that don't, that aren't providing them with that they don't have the income that they need to sort of provide the children with all that they might want so when you give a bunch of money mm-hmm. as the as the refundable child tax credit does that's going to help with that just I want, I want to jump in here on this. One of the things that was, I think we a lot of people kind of knew it, but it wasn't talked about. It wasn't in your face. It was just kind of really under the surface. I mean, I'm sure there are focus groups and, and activists that have, you know, the, the, you know, think about this and, 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 and I'm sure other policymakers as well. So I don't want to say that no one thinks about this, but I was, I didn't recognize it. One of the most depressing and sobering and just inexcusable things that I realized in the pandemic was when school shut down, how many children were going to go hungry and starve because the only meal they were getting all day was at school. I mean, I was just absolutely I mean, decimated my kind of like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, how is that possible? Like, you know, the you know, biggest or richest country or whatever, one of these wealthiest countries in the world, that's unacceptable. And I have to imagine a lot of that stuff on on an American rescue plan for ending child poverty had to come for that. Like this is unacceptable. Kids should not be. I mean, and I don't know. I mean, I I know people pick on Biden about his age, but you know, Biden can remember. I mean, this was a big problem. In the 60s, too. That mm-hmm. was the whole thing with the war on poverty. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think Kennedy had the initial pieces of that. But then LBJ kind of really pushed to try and, and end and to try to really fix a lot of that stuff, especially in the South where he was from. So is that kind of some of that where it was like we recognize like, oh, yikes, like <laughs> this is the only meal. I mean, the fact that the people were in full like gear at schools to keep giving kids their meals that was the Mm -hmm. only reason they were going it wasn't the schools were closed everyone was at home because that was was so like just disheartening i mean it was and it's something that i I didn't really think about or recognize and i'm sure a lot of i mean there's a bunch of pieces written about it news was on it that explain this do you think that's where some of this came from i well i i think that was where a lot of the uh uh, a, a lot of the impetus to make to make some big changes was coming from. So you, you're right, of course, that so uh, school lunches, particularly uh, uh, particularly subsidized school lunches. So school yeah. uh, is kind of one of the more uh, one of the more effective ways at just making sure that kids are getting the food and nutrition they need to thrive, uh, or at least n- to. To, to not go hungry, have the attempt, yeah, to be able to succeed even if they aren't thriving, right. uh, and, and it, it was really important. It's a big problem during uh, summers as well. Yeah, uh, that yeah. that many school districts try to run school lunches, but because those kids aren't going to school every day, it, there's just it's it's sort of I, I, there, there's a big problem with just uh, hunger during the uh, during summers, and I think that that many way that in many ways the uh, the uh, refundable tax credit was structured to kind of help counteract some of those problems. Mm. So apologies for getting a little wonky, but it's, it's sort of You're useful fine. to kind of get. So the, the way that uh, that the child tax credit 
is normally worked out is you file your taxes every year and then you get some credit back because you had some children or even so you maybe pay less taxes or if you're uh so you pay less taxes well for a lot of people maybe they don't pay enough taxes to make it worth it and it only happens kind of that once a year and so what was really exciting about the about the American Rescue Plan's uh, way it restructured tax credits was it made it that they were going to pay them monthly. So kind of effectively, the government was going to send you a check every month. And then at the end of the year, kind of you'd figure out kind of whether they sent you a little more than you are owed or a little less. And you'd pay, you'd either get the difference or receive the, or, or pay the difference. But effectively, it would look a lot more like a regular check for families with children uh, based on uh, based on their income from the previous year, mm-hmm. and that's really exciting because it means that really low income families were going to be getting some money that was going to be specifically for children. Now, just to be clear, it didn't have to be used for children, mm-hmm. but it, that just having more money around for families with children can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, you know, I think one of this is maybe again just a footnote, but. I think one of the, the the campaigns for Michelle Obama of, of eating better and exercising stuff, but a lot of it, I remember there was in, I remember which bill it was during Obama's administration, I think first term, I think that's right. Uh, yes, was, I think yes, which was to to have healthier options for school lunches. Mm-hmm. So that way, it's a way of 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 kids being able to, Yes, if that's the only meal you're getting in the day, at least it's a it's a it's a better meal than you're just you know eating you know chicken nuggets and pizza and stuff that I'm sure all kids like. But my kids eat a lot of chicken nuggets. I'm going yeah. to completely admit that they like them. Yeah, uh, they don't say ew yucky, which is what my three year old says. But you know, when you're hungry, you're going to eat whatever you're given, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's I I mean that was a big. Um, you know, I, I, uh, uh, proponent of, of of pushing for that because I think we do need to have. It's a whole other conversation, but you know, way better uh, ways in which our 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 food industry needs to operate in the U.S. So I kind of push for it. So I that also came into my mind as well. It's like, oh wow, you know, like you know, I, I know maybe some of that was you know you know relaxed a bit during the Trump administration or whatever, but it was like at least they could get something. And you know what? If if some schools kept that or whatever, maybe it was a decent meal. I mean, again, as you know, as far as a school lunch can go, it only goes so far. But still, like even something like you know, eating wheat bread than white bread. I mean, that can. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it's still bread or whatever. But like at least it's a little bit better in some ways. Things like that. So, so um, having having access to affordable and nutritious food is a big deal. Um, so one of the things that people who work in this area think about are food deserts, which is essentially that where a lot of people live, yeah. uh, kind of the only food that's available is sort of fast food kind mm-hmm. of style. Yeah. And you can get a lot of calories for that. It's I mean, kind of the, the calories per dollar isn't necessarily, but it, it's not, they aren't healthy calories. Uh, and so we really do want people to be able to have affordably good food, but that's a really hard policy problem. It turns out. Yeah, no, it, it is. It is. Uh, it is super, super difficult. So 
all of these things that are that have happened on the policy side have been super fascinating. And obviously, much of your book is you know on the economics, but you do talk about, especially in the the last part of the book, about some of the some of the implications and and kind of <clears throat> what this looks like uh, going forward. Um, I know just one thing though before we do that, you had mentioned it, and so I just there's two things here during the pandemic I wanted to to kind of if you want to chat a little bit more about it. So you did mention that. And as I said, this people um, had talked. I remember um, reading about this and hearing about this about folks that were, you know, people of color, uh, Black Americans, uh, Latino Americans, uh, Native Americans. It was issues in the pandemic were uh, substantially worse for them. I guess the question I have there: some people were moaning and groaning about. Why, why are we thinking about race right now? I mean, this is a health crisis. This just impacts everybody. Why are we Why are we breaking it down this way? I mean, even even in a health, you know, crisis, we're we're talking about race issues. You know, why, why do we need to do that? And so, I guess I think there's some pretty again. There's the data mm-hmm. pieces of it. Um, but why do you think uh, you mentioned the book? But why do you think it's important to? Uh, consider those things and, and to think about those data points for, for folks that are in certain communities. Well, uh, so even in a health crisis, I think it's worth, it's worth thinking first, just health crisis can be worse for some groups, but more generally uh, black Americans have light, lower life expectancies than white Americans. And that that's just an ongoing tragedy. Uh, it, it's, and it's a preventable one. I mean, it's largely about access to quality health care. Uh, and it really is a it's a problem just un- that underlies a lot of other things. So then the pandemic comes along and it makes that even worse. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, sort of one of the ways one of the ways we should think about breaking those things down is it was already bad yeah. and this made it even worse. Um, is I think kind of the way I I like to think about it. Uh, And so it's useful always to understand kind of like, well, where are the inequalities? Where are the people who maybe are not doing so well in our system? And how can we think about policies that might help bring them along so that we're all engaging in a prosperous uh, economic system and a prosperous that doesn't have to be economic and a prosperous broader system, health Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. I don't, I mean, I can sort of hear the arguments, I guess. I mean, I think if people overemphasize that, you know, or we're going to, you know, give certain, you know, vaccines first to certain groups and others. I mean, I I understand some of it, but I do think the data is what it is. Unfortunately, it is a tragedy and we need to be concerned about all Americans. And if folks have, you know, certain needs, uh, you know, or or they have a different set of challenges or, you know, worse types of uh, access to things, we should, you know, I think collectively take care of folks that uh, have 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 you know really uh, dire needs. Another thing that came out as well; these are these things that just kind of you don't think about, but then they kind of come up was intimate partner violence. So if you're stuck at home um, and you're with already, so kind of again stuff that's already been going on. Let's say you have a, um, you know, you're, you're in an abusive situation, unfortunately, whether that's physically or, or sexually or emotionally or psychologically, and you have to be at home with that person, you know, and people, a lot of the times people will go to, go to school or go to work or do other things. And that's their kind of respite. 
But if you're literally have stay at home orders and you can't leave, uh, people can get really, you know, <laughs> worse if it's already bad. Um, it's, it's really awful. Um, so I guess what do we learn from intimate partner violence rates during the pandemic? Um, did they shoot up? I actually don't know the data on this. So. Well, so first, it just it's one of those things, intimate partner violence is just really hard to study. And so I, I think it's just useful to just acknowledge that because in some ways it's sort of, it, it, it's one of those things where it, it, it reporting differs by by place. It, it's It's hard to get people to report because often they don't want to. Um, and that was all made much worse during the pandemic because even reporting was going to be harder. Uh, so it, the, the evidence is fuzzy. Uh, but for example, I think uh, Time called it the uh, shadow pandemic, the sort of the pandemic that was going on behind the pandemic. Uh, and I think you mentioned some of the big the big things. Well, we had these shutdown orders. You weren't allowed to go anywhere. So yeah. there wasn't really any way you could escape. In fact, many kind of shelter, group home kind of possible outlets were shut down as well. So yeah. it, there wasn't really a way to kind of get away from it. Mm. So in many places, it seems like it went up, although, again, the reporting is a little hard. And in some ways, it kind of not, not makes sense as in it makes sense that uh, intimate partner violence doesn't make sense. But it makes sense that during a very stressful situation, yeah. uh, there would be more people having fights and problems with each other. I think a lot more people drank. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people drank more uh, mm-hmm. the, the, during the pandemic just in combination of financial stress, general stress, stuck at home with each other and alcohol sounds like a pretty bad brew of possible things. And then with everything shut down, there wasn't really a good way to escape. Uh, And so I think as far as we can tell, it looks like things were pretty bad for a lot of people for a while. Mm. Yeah, I'll be interested to see. I've known a few uh, colleagues and other people who have had on podcasts that have done some work with intimate partner violence. I'm I'm curious to see people that have already been doing this research and work to see, sadly, what we find out, um, you know, from from those years. I mean, that's what's really happening now. It's kind of a product of of kind of your book as well, which is we're starting to kind of do a lot of postmortems. We're starting Mm -hmm. to do a lot of you know epilogues, a lot of like you know retrospective, like okay, what 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 happened here? But what happened in all these different um, metrics? One one of the other ones is. You know the role of of childcare and 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 uh, and and, and women's uh, you know roles you know for for women that do take care of children. That was during the pandemic. I mean, obviously it impacts families, but uh, women were really, you know, pushed to the to 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 the limits on doing a lot of these things. And I think a lot of people, I don't know, I think recognize like, well, holy shit, childcare is super expensive for one, <laughs> and. Yes, you might be able to work from home, which we'll come to in a minute. But if you're also taking care of children, uh, or if you're a single mom and you're trying to take care of children and have a job, if you're able to work from home, there was just all these things that, like, granted, it wasn't designed to be that way. So, you know, we again, we thought something was going to be, you know, a couple weeks or a couple months max, and that's it. We didn't think for many people they're still working at home in some ways, or they're still kind of doing this hybrid thing. But that also came in into play too. So, I mean, what, what did you make of the role of of, of childcare and, and women's labor during the pandemic? Well, so first, I think it's just sort of it, it's worth acknowledging that while a lot of people are doing more childcare, whenever you have more childcare going on, 
it still falls disproportionately on women. And I think, they, and yeah. I should say that's in a heterosexual relationship sure. in other relationships that can be more complicated, uh, but kind of, and what that dynamic meant was that when the kids were home, women's labor, which is often kind of unreport, un sort of underreported and under kind of recognized went up. Yeah. Uh, even while they were still trying to do their jobs. And, I th- and what that meant was that a lot of women were uh, just having a really hard time making all of the things add up. Okay. Um, and I can say I, I, I had a similar experience. My, my two kids uh, who were uh, sort of at the beginning of the pandemic were six and four. Uh, Childcare was just kind of the defining feature of my wife and my, uh, my life yeah. for that those two years. When we had it, we could do our jobs. It turned out we could work from home pretty well. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. But kind of when we didn't have it, it was just sort of a scramble and juggling of trying to kind of make sure our kids were happy and fed, but trying to do our jobs, but kind of not doing either terribly well. And it was just, it was really, really hard and stressful. Yeah. And so a lot of what ended up then happening was sort of when it became clear that schools we're often not going to reopen, at least in person in September 2020, in August 2020, a lot of women, it, it seemed, really did leave the labor force or, or really cut back. That sort of, they've been able to kind of make it work when there was an end in sight, but with when school wasn't going to be in session, maybe it worked, maybe it turned out that you needed to really change how you were going to approach things. Uh, so there were some big dips in labor force participation mm-hmm. for a lot of women right during sort of those, uh, during those sort of uh, back to school months. Yeah. 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 I mean, <clears throat> I heard many stories uh, from friends and family and clients about, about this, this feature. And, you know, it's, again, it kind of shines a light on the role of, of women's labor, you know, that they, they if they work outside the home when they come home they have another job to do typically and mm-hmm. i think that can again i think it puts a spotlight on it and says okay well how do we make that different you know what is the role of what men do um, how do you have more equality for for parenting uh, especially as we have a in some ways a more modern uh you know, 21st century and how we look at work and relationships and things like that. And so I think it's, it was another <clears throat> reminder of, of, uh, of, you know, kind of gendered roles, if you will, quote unquote, mm-hmm. I mean, kind of the, the, the standard, um, way we look at gender roles in, in a, in a household. Um, you know, I think people, I mean, much, much has been, you know, talked about on podcast and uh, written mm-hmm. about and think pieces and things like that. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see where that evolves. Yeah, well, and without claiming more than we actually know, but I think one of the things that just the ability to work from home and that experience when many people were working from home, it maybe gave some more transparency on all the things that had to happen yeah. Yeah. Uh, that maybe not may not have been quite so evident when kind of both spe- when when one spouse was commuting and the other wasn't, or when both spouses were commuting, it kind of made it a little more clear. Oh, these are the things that need to happen for this family to work. Mm-hmm. And that may be a good thing. I mean, we'll we'll, we'll see whether that's in long term. I think we're still gonna. That this is still one of those evolving things that's very hard to study. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So let's talk about work real quick. <clears throat> Obviously, I mean, I talked about it at one point in the conversation about 
all of these norms started to change and work was one of them. Now, people had hated the cubicle lifestyle for ages. I mean, it's a fucking terrible way to work, right? I don't, I don't know how people, I mean, I've done a small amount of that and it's awful. Um, so, so many people went and they, we realized we could work from home. Now, you tell me what you think about this because I've said this kind of just casually, but if we didn't have wonderful uh, advances in in tech and in, in uh, many ways in which we do things with you know computers, I mean, if the pandemic hit before 2012, maybe 20, even 2015, honestly, I mean, it, it would have been like what everyone was, if, if this was 08, 09, mm-hmm. and not everyone, I mean, I don't, I don't know if Zoom existed. I think we had old Skype, but that just would not have been tenable back then, you know, to, to be functional. Um, you know, I mean, I can't imagine, like literally all those people, if you take for the most part, I'm just going to just just totally shooting from the hip here. But if you take a large percentage of people that work from home, myself included, all those people are out, out of work. All of those people probably mm-hmm. are laid off or furloughed or, you know, they let go or whatever. I mean, so much of being able to work from home was due to the advances in uh, technology and, and how we're able to use a lot of the digital age. Um, so how so what do you think about that in terms of like i mean it's hard to do like a what if kind of thing but you know maybe a model or something of like wow it would have been would have been bad would, that would have been just like really the scary you know end game kind of thing but how much was working from home saving not necessarily saving the economy but keeping it afloat treading water and being able to do things I, well, I think a lot. So, uh, it, it, of course, if we couldn't work from home, then then I think there's just a big difference in that sort of suddenly we we go from those 22 million people who are who yeah. lose their jobs, and those are largely people who are doing some sort of like personal service, we're sort of customer facing something. So, people who are cutting hair, well, you, well, nobody's going to the barber. People who are uh, you know, working in sales shops or something, who who were relate. Who were working with other people, and that was just a necessary part of their job. Right. But the people who didn't have a necessary, who working physically with somebody else as part of their job, it turned out that as we found in March, starting in March, we had all these tools that yeah. had been sort of slowly developing. That meant that basically it was surprising how seamless a transition it was now just to be clear seamless is uh, i mean there were a lot of zoom calls with everybody on mute and can you hear me i mean and just (laughs) i i still do those it's not as if it was perfect but the fact that more or less a third more of the workforce suddenly just sort of changed completely the way it works Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a matter of weeks and by a month later was basically as productive as it had been before. And in fact, in many cases, more productive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, is just it is really kind of remarkable. It really shows both the ingenuity that individually, but also that sort of accumulation of technology. And it's it's hard to pick when that would have happened. I, I was looking up, I think Skype was founded in 2003. I've been using it for a while, but you need good enough broadband that you can kind of mm-hmm. carry on a conversation in, in with a video chat. Mm-hmm. Because without video chat, then you kind of lose, maybe you can still do things by phone, but things are just a little bit mm-hmm. 
So kind of the almost seamless of being able to both video chat and share files more or less seamlessly it is relatively new. Is it is something where we've got a good enough internet that we can actually kind of mostly do that mm-hmm. kind of communication. Yeah. And what what would have happened would have been things would have been a lot lot worse in many ways. Just we wouldn't have been able to carry on in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I find the work from home revolution really fascinating because yeah. I think it's one of the things that has the potential to have really long term consequences on both where we work, how we work, and it just sort of general human happiness in complex ways that I don't I think we don't understand completely yet. But I yeah. think it's really exciting. Uh, I'm totally with you on that. It's been it's been it almost not that we needed a pandemic for that to happen, but we needed something big to happen to push because we were still doing, you know, things the way it had been done. And that's just how we and office space and you know, all these things and, you know, meetings in, you know, in person that being mandatory and all, a lot of these things, which people have been saying, like, look, I don't think we need to do this like this all the time. Well, let's try and do it somewhere else. And a lot of companies were just dragging their feet on it. And it and, turned out we didn't have to do things no, that way. You're right. That's right. And, and, and it the pandemic kind of gave us that kick in the pants to yeah. realize, yeah. wait a second, th- this doesn't have to be the way that we organize work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, it, and all those tools really already existed. It wasn't yeah. as if this couldn't have been done before, but it did require sort of this thing which sent everybody home. Not everybody. And I want to make sure I acknowledge essential workers, just all the, but yeah, sent of course, yeah basically people who were working in an office home uh, and sort of, okay, we're just going to do this. And then it turned out, well, this actually works pretty well in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but it, it's sort of worth remembering kind of that that technology really had been there. So I've been, I've been working with, I'm an academic. I work with co-authors who are in different cities and there are a bunch of them who, even before the pandemic, I hadn't seen for years, but we had various sort of Skype or, uh, or now we would have zoom conversations. We, we could send files back and forth. We had file sharing things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so kind of all of that kind of distributed work, had already been kind of we'd already worked it out and then it, then everybody else discovered oh wait this is actually i can do this with the person i used to sit in a cubicle next to i don't i don't actually share any actual files with them any actual physical pieces of paper with them anymore it's all electronic huh mm-hmm. that's yeah. how can we do things better where can we live i, I well, i'm sorry if i kind of well, no no that's we don't right. have to live in right, the big right. city. Right, right, right. No, a lot of that. I will say, I think that there, even for jobs that can be fully remote or whatever, however, whatever the terms we're, we're, we're making more accurate for it. I do, this is me personally, I think not every job needs to be, you know, in person or things like that. But I do wonder what that does. And that's something we're just going to experiment with. You know, for people that work at a job and they've never met anybody that they work with in person ever, mm-hmm. I think long term, that is going to have an, an I think potentially negative impact. Um, I definitely don't think that's going to be for everybody. Um, so there's, there's some interesting psychological things there. I think that um, the people I like to think about uh, are sort of people starting their careers. 
Yeah. So, and yeah. I, I think about them a lot, just sort of I, I uh, as a former academic, as somebody who trained graduate students, as somebody who still has research assistants. Sure. Th- th- these are people who are learning, who are starting out in their career. Yeah. And am I giving them the same kind of mentorship, the same kind of training, the same kind of helping along as I would if we were sort of in the same room most of the time? I, right. I don't know. And, and right. I think there may be something lost there. Maybe we'll figure out ways to kind of do yeah. it better. Or maybe we'll find that there really is something really important that's lost in that, or or that there's some real psychological that kind of not being with that there are relationships we developed in person and those have sort of continued over the pandemic. But as we get to sort of entirely virtual ones, maybe there's going to be some loss of trust and ability to work together. And it's hard to tell those things, but they might be really important. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think, I think that bit of it, and I also think about how, I mean, people have right now when they go into work, such a hard time turning off work when they go home. Mm. And one of the big things that I hear often still is, yes, people are more productive, but they're just working later. You know, they're, <laughs> they're, they got, they have, you know, a show on in the back room and the computer's still up and they're, they're doing like just 12 hour days, 14 hour days because, well, I'm here at home and I got nothing else going on. And I think people have slowly adjusted to that, but I think it does make it harder to kind of have a segregation, an appropriate segregation of work and home life. Um, mm-hmm. especially if you have, you know, and again, some of the things I've talked about with people throughout the past couple of years is, you know, these things aren't like you know, definitive, you know, things, but you know, have a room just where you work if you can and not everyone can do that or a space of your one bedroom apartment where you just kind of you know uh parishion it out that way like um you know things like that or you know make sure you start and stop kind of at the same time you normally would or like you're finding new ways but i think that's just it you have to find even if you work from home completely and you don't have to go into an office people have to find for themselves still boundaries of Mm -hmm. work and home and, and that's a interesting aspect of these kind of worlds that are in separate spaces and times of the day colliding in the same space and overlapping with times. That's a new problem, which is fine. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it definitely needs to be, uh, you know, people have to, to, to adjust and acclimate to that. Otherwise, you know, yeah, we're going to see other issues of people having psychological challenges. Yeah. Well, so academics have long had this problem. So I I used to describe uh, doing it. So I did a PhD. uh, And I essentially, it's sort of guilt management. It's sort of you could always be working, because essentially, you're working for yourself. I mean, you know, you're you're writing papers, you're that there's always more work to do. Yes. And so kind of effectively, you kind of have to figure out kind of like, what are my boundaries because right. they're my boundaries. <laughs> There's effectively for this is true for a PhD. It's true as an assistant, as an assistant professor. You can get by on very little work mm-hmm. for a long time. It will catch up with you eventually. So this isn't this is not me advocating <laughs> any grad students or PhD or, or assistant right. professors don't work. Right. But for a long time, you don't have to do and and. It's your choice when to t- whether you want to take vacations or to take vacations or when to take vacations, as long as you're covering your classes. Mm-hmm. But you have to sort of manage that. And that's, that's a psychological thing, not a sort of a, I'm clocking in and out at a specific time. And it's hard. And, and I, I'm not sure. Uh, academics are not the most... Um, <laughs> 
no. uh, happy and socially well adjusted people on in general. So I'm no, not sure if we not. figured it out yet. No, not, no, they're not. Um, yes. And I think this is in some ways harder. I think mm-hmm. this is, I think from, from my experience of working and in, in, in other people, uh, 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 personally, this is harder for people because if you have a system and you could just, you know, kind of apply this, you know, export this to other things. If you have a system telling you come in here, come in there, here's the rules, here's the parameters. Okay. You know, whatever, you know, everyone's kind of gone home for the day. You're the last one. Okay. I should probably, you know, leave, you know, it, when there's a outside system telling you, directing, guiding you people kind of just follow it. And it's like, well, yeah, whatever, it's fine. you know. But when you have to do that and doing that, that work and setting the boundaries, it's very hard for people to do. And so I, anyways, and, and then the other thing I just want to say about work is I think a lot of the things I haven't explicitly stated it in the conversation, but um, it's just the amount of how this in terms of work and even how the, the pandemic impacted people, it, it, it impacted people that have you know, quote unquote you know blue collar types of jobs uh than white collar jobs you know and <clears throat> i think that that's totally that's a to- there folks that have uh that that worked in these kind of you know service industry and, and food service and, and and these types of jobs they have a different experience of the pandemic than people mm-hmm. that were at home working on their computers. It was mm-hmm. very, very different experience. Um, and and I think a lot of the the programs and a lot of the things that were done throughout the pandemic really did help a lot of the it helped everybody, but I think it did help a lot of those folks. They were able to keep going as you were talking about like kind of the benefits and the unemployment and the extensions and the mortgage and eviction stuff. I mean it really did help those folks kind of become a little bit more uh, readily able to to manage things a little bit more. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. And in, in some senses, I think that that's one of the uh, one of the things we sort of need to remember as both as economists, as policymakers, as people who talk to others about what's going on, is that often our experiences are actually kind of narrow. Uh, and so, you know, a journalist, an economist. Uh, a podcaster, I, our experience of the pandemic might actually have been pretty similar. We could go home. We, you know, most of our work is done online. And it just, there were a bunch of really unpleasant things about the pan- pandemic. I don't want to claim, but the, the sort of the, the, the experience of working from home, some of which carried isolation, was just entirely different for, I'll call it that kind of class, if you want, of yeah. people mm-hmm. than people who were fired just as a but also people who were having to go in uh and i i I think kind of just remembering just how terrifying it would have had it would have been to go in and work at a grocery store in april 2020 absolutely or or, uh or to take another one to be a nurse all through 2020 oh yeah uh with all the extra demands that were sort of being put on uh healthcare workers uh, th- that's just a totally different experience, and, yeah. and remembering that is, I think, important. Even while the work from home experience and cha- remote work revolution really what is a big deal, uh, a lot of work will never be remote. Uh, doctors, nurses are mostly going to go have to treat physical people in a physical space, uh, even if we have more telemedicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just a, a few last questions here. 
Um, so kind of the, as we've been, I don't want to say coming out of the pandemic, because it's still, I guess it's sort of endemic to us now, but um, we're still dealing with, we're at this stage of it, right? Not in the acuity stage, we're in the kind of rebuilding stage, and you know, hopefully in the next year and a half or so, we'll, we'll kind of you know, kind of have it more or less, you know, out behind us. But um, so we've had this, we had the supply chain issue last year. Everyone was up in arms about it. And it was, a, I mean, it was a big deal. I'm not trying to minimize it. I mean, it's a big deal. And, 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 and uh, you know, gas prices in the summer were bad. And, and then, um, which again is a much talked about thing, which doesn't necessarily have this direct impact on, on some economic policies. But, um, and then we have inflation, which has been, unfortunately all the rage is what everyone's talking about mm-hmm. um and i know there's been some efforts to really curb that i mean raising interest rates and trying to bring it down and things like that and the answer we get from the administration is well duh we just had a pandemic i mean yeah of course we're going to have high inflation of course we're going to have a... so i mean again how much from your vantage point as an economist looking at you know, gas prices and supply chain issues, but really inflation and the economy now. So we're in, you know, March of 2023. Um, what's happened? What's Where's the economy now based on all of this stuff? We, we had a lot of, you know, stuff budgeted out with these various bills. And mm-hmm. we've had a lot of injection of things and people are back to work and people are for the most part. And so we're, we're trying to get things going. So where's our just our current economic state now? as a as a as a results you know um you know correlation or otherwise from the pandemic and and where where do you see it maybe kind of going that's always harder for economists to figure out yeah well uh so so economists who make forecasts are always are are, are almost always going to be wrong right, uh, right. so i i but all right so maybe let me break that down into a couple of different things so first just sort of the pandemic was weird and it caused a lot of things to change really rapidly mm-hmm. and so that we're getting some kind of weird supply and then inflation problems is it, sort of not a surprise not in the sense that I would have necessarily predicted those things in early 2021 but in the sense that sort of lots of weird things were going on that kind of sort of been rippling out uh, and to connect those a little bit, one of the things that sort of that came about from inflation is that as because we did such a good job of protecting everybody's finances, people had money to spend and their savings had gone way up. And it, for a while, people weren't really were still not going out on vacations and to bars and to restaurants. So what do they do? They bought stuff. Right. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I I wanted to work from home. My wife and I bought out, but we already had some workout equipment, but we bought a new stationary bike. Turns out lots of people did that. And yes. stationary bikes, by and large, come from China. And so all that stuff, we, we had a big increase in stuff, but not really a big increase in our ability to deal with moving stuff from place to place. And so it kind of just got all gummed up. Mm-hmm. So that was that was kind of the supply chain. But the thing about gumming up is it meant that things weren't as available as you wanted. So the the stationary bikes that were already in the United States, people were willing to pay more for them. And so prices started to go up. Uh, so that, that for example, is what happened with used cars, which which had this huge increase in prices because cars weren't, cars weren't getting made as much and more people wanted them because they were starting to go back you know, to start move around. But it turned out the supply wasn't there. And so prices went up. 
Uh, so that's part of what's going on. Just sort of all of these changes that were occurring that will eventually kind of work themselves out, but in the meantime, kind of are just these big ripples that are going through the economy. Uh, and to be fair, some of that is also uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, and that really increased uh, oil prices, and that's really contributed. So there are some sort of complications there that are sort of, but in general, Inflation aside, so I did, this isn't to say inflation doesn't matter, but inflation aside, the economy is really good right now. Mm. Uh, lots of people are employed. The unemployment rate is really low. Things aren't are beginning to kind of generally revert to kind of where they were before the pandemic. So that's sort of, in some ways, it means that sort of that big reset of kind of everybody's finances are so much better has really kind of gone away. So people have started spending their savings, they're having more problems, but they're still better than they were. And maybe we'll sort of end up at a place where sort of things are better off. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe I should say that kind of like, I, I at least really excited that it seems like there's been a something of a change in people's approach to work in particular. Sure, yeah. um, and some of that's work from home. But I think a lot of it is that just having better finances, having better unemployment insurance, and just sort of seeing, hey, I can be fired whenever my boss wants me to. And in fact, I was, kind of helps people kind of set some boundaries and make demands and not be willing to accept quite as much uh, just of the uh, of the sort of abuse that's maybe a little bit strong but of the of the ways in which many employers have just been taking advantage of their employees in a fairly weak labor market for many years up until the pandemic mm, yeah yeah i i i, I agree I, I i think the 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 you know, the strange thing that was not on anybody's bingo card i don't think was this 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 I mean, revolution is such a loaded word, I think, but it's really this revolution in work. I mean, it really in the mm -hmm. modern 21st century. So I guess, how do we learn, uh, I'll ask it specifically, and then I guess generally I'll, I'll end with it, but how do we learn that we could spend less and save more? Um, unemployment insurance is a good thing. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? <laughs> and how do we finally get serious about childcare reform um, and how 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 much we can stick to that these are some of the specifics but how do, how do we learn all these things in the pandemic yeah well so I, i'm going to bring this back to the title of my book so yeah, yeah, please. A, a, a paradox is what you get when you get kind of reach two things and sort of like these things can't both exist that this is sort of uh one one of these things has to be wrong and when you reach a paradox you realize well okay that means we've assumed something has wrong and so kind of the value of kind of reaching something where you kind of realize that maybe we that we've made some incorrect assumptions is then you can go back and think, okay, well, what are the assumptions that we were making that were kind of keeping us from doing things the way we sort of want to be? And so one of the things I like to try to I, I try to end the book with is is some is, is with some lessons for what we've learned in different ways. So one of them, I think, uh, sort of using both childcare and housing, I think are kind of, because they're somewhat combined, is just how crucial both of them are for households and for sort of the way in which we approach things. So yeah. this was true both for mortgages, it was true for evictions, and for childcare, it was just true for people's ability to work. And so the, the sense in which both childcare as an expense, but also childcare availability 
and housing availability and affordable housing availability are just key to kind of everything that underlies all of our ability to kind of thrive financially, I think are really important. Uh, I think, and I think I already mentioned this, but I think we we really have realized that just having a strong labor market, having people in demand and employers having to compete over people it has a lot of really good things. And a lot of that comes from having people just be better off financially on uh, in general, because then they can say, hey, uh, so uh, the, the walk away money is, I think, what uh, what I what I think it used to be called. If you've got if you're if you don't have any money and you're stuck in your job, then you gotta accept whatever bad conditions your employer is going to give you. Mm-hmm. But if you have some money, and if you've got good unemployment insurance, well, then you've got walk away money, and maybe you can demand better, or maybe you can go to the player down the street who's going to give you better, mm-hmm. and that that really can change a bunch of bunch of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think kind of generally kind of in a in a broader sense, and I'll sort of end with this, mm-hmm. we really did amazing things during the pandemic. Now, not everybody, not everything was perfect, but it was certainly and a lot of people died, but we changed the way we worked. We changed massive policies. We changed our spending and savings. And these are really tremendously massive social and economic changes. Uh, and I at least think that they've provided some of the impetus for then sort of bigger changes. We realize, hey, we can change everything about the way we work, about the way we live, about how we protect each other. Well, what else can we do? We can do other really big things, things like climate change, things like continuing some of these policies so that maybe we're a little less uh, fragile. And that's really exciting, even though it took a million of us dying for us to learn some of those lessons. Yeah, no, I I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I think that, like in many aspects of of life and in, in our history, um, you know, I mean, this is going to sound like you know I'm I'm parroting you know <laughs> Biden of sorts. I mean, it's it is it is a fact though. I mean, I think that in our darkest moments we come out on top. You know, we really get together and we figure it out. And I think that's just true of life. Mm-hmm. But we suffer. We, we we're forced to face reality in some ways, uh, even though it's really hard, even though we have a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and, and all that. And then we say, okay, how do we, how do we keep fighting? How do we keep trying? And, and, and I, I totally agree. We, we made a lot of things that normally, I think the work example is the one that really sticks out to me is something we thought would never really happen or we need something. And, you know, we did it and, you know, we've, we found new ways of working in, in, in a modern age and, and, and many other things, like I said, health norms and finances, et cetera. So. Yeah, I totally agree. The book is called The Pandemic Paradox, How the COVID Crisis Made Americans More Financially Secure. Uh, Where can people find this and and where can people uh, find yourself? Uh, so it's out on uh, May 16th from the uh, from Princeton University Press and should be available at uh, major bookstores, including uh, major bookstores. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I work at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but I have a uh, my my website uh, at scottfulford.com uh, has a bunch of my uh, other work. No, that's that's wonderful. Well, look, uh, Scott. I mean, this has been uh, so so uh, fantastic. I I really. Uh, appreciate you giving me your time and your energy going into uh, all the details of your your wonderful book. Uh, I really, really had a blast. I, 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 I 
intentionally uh, don't like get, getting, you know, mired down in all the obnoxious uh, <laughs> aspects of the way people talk about the pandemic. We didn't talk about vaccines. We didn't talk about masks. We didn't talk about mandates. We didn't talk about law. We didn't talk about any of that. We kept it on the data and uh, on the things that really, uh, I think, people really care about the most. And so I, I, I thank you so much for, for coming on and, and, and talking to us about all this uh, really important stuff. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>